you know, follow this con man's course. And it happens to people all the time. It just makes my blood boil. Like I feel obligated to set the record straight with people. Could it happen once out of a thousand times? Yes. But you'll spend the next five years trying to find that one over a thousand businesses. Sounds terrific, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good, right? The only thing is you don't take into account, or I didn't take into account in my sheer brilliance, is what if the stock goes down? Well, the stock, pardon my friend, shit the bed. The thing that I want to really impart to people is it's doable. I mean, anybody can do it. Not everybody will, but anybody can do it. And for those that own businesses currently, they should be looking at this in two ways. Number one is... You know, I saw one ad not long ago. They said, buy a business throwing off $250,000 a year of cash flow for no money down and complete the transaction in 30 days. I'll tell you what, I'll eat the building that I'm in right now, if that's possible. If you wait for the right time, the right time never materializes because you could always talk yourself out of doing anything. My name is Richard Parker. I'm 62 years old. I still feel 18. And I'm coming to you live and in person from South Florida. I live between Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach in a city called Boca Raton. And what's your company? My company is Diomo Corporation and richardparker.com. That's on the buyer education piece. And then I do my M&A work through Roy Street Advisors. So I guess it sounds like kind of three companies. Is there, is there one specifically that you're best known for? The two companies, richardparker.com is the educational material related to individuals that are interested in acquiring businesses. So Diomo Corporation is affiliated with that. They're intertwined. And Roy Street Advisors is the mergers and acquisition work that I do specifically representing sellers, which is a business that's been around for fewer years, but I've been in the M&A sell-side representation for three decades. Sellers of what? Ah, good question. Business owners that are looking to sell their business. Typically, there's a period by which they have to prepare their business for sale. Most of them want to go to market and believe their business is ready to sell. And I would say probably 90% of their businesses are not ready for sale. And so I spend quite a bit of time, which will typically range from about six to 12 months, helping them prepare their business for sale to make it more saleable to a broader market and processes, procedures that they can implement employees that they can put into place that will significantly increase the value of their business when the time comes to exit, which they're generally looking for in a shorter window of time over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. So you help people buy and sell businesses? So you're a business broker? Well, I don't consider myself a business broker, and that's not saying anything disparaging as far as business brokers are concerned. But on the acquisition side and the representation side, I deal in higher profitable businesses, businesses that typically have EBITDA from $1 to $10 million, and business brokerage, not always, but by and large, is a more Main Street USA businesses. So I'm considered an investment banker in the lower market because that will entail additionally bringing parties to finance the deal, oftentimes multiple parties and some type of syndication to provide the financing for the deal, which generally does not happen in the lower end amongst business brokers. And how big is your business as far as, I guess, maybe clients, employees, revenue? Can you just give us some facts and figures? Sure. Well, it's a private company, so I'm not going to disclose exact financial information, but on our publication side and our main program, which is called How to Buy a Good Business at a Great Price, which is developed and published specifically for individuals looking to acquire businesses, we've sold over 100,000 copies. On the M&A side, 
I've been doing transactions for 30 years, typically average about three or four transactions a year with the average enterprise value right around, it's just under $10 million. And are these businesses just like in South Florida? It's an interesting question because prior to COVID, the M&A business or seller representation would have been strictly in Florida, mostly in Southeast Florida. But as the world got used to Zoom and working remotely and more people working remotely, the footprint has expanded exponentially right across America. I have clients in Europe as well. And on the publication side, our business, while we're based in South Florida, we have clients in 86 countries. I don't know if it's easier to talk about one first versus the other. Like, how, Let's how would... talk about the buy side, certainly. Yeah, the buy side, because that's where the publication is, and that's any offset to generating revenue related to this, is, I think is going to be more interesting for people looking to potentially acquire a business or a franchise. And similarly, if there's business owners, if you have a good audience of business owners that may consider growing their business through acquisition, those, those are pretty much good subjects. Okay. Well, like for the buy side, then what company out of the two, right? Because we got, how do you say it? Diomo. It's the abbreviation for doing it on my own. D-I-O-M-O. Okay, good. Okay. Because I was trying to figure out the way to pronounce that. So anyone can look right now at diomo.com, right? To find educational information about buying businesses, really? Yeah. So what we did was because we wanted to really expand the resources that we make available to buyers and not simply be a company that sells educational material. Because I went into this business never to make money. I did it as a a labor love and to try to help people. And and I never even thought it was going to turn into a business. So the richardparker.com offshoot is strictly resources, hundreds of articles related to buying businesses, covering every step of the business buying process. And as a double click to that, the materials that we offer are available from that site that takes you to Diomo. Diomo was the first company that I started when I went into my own business in larger businesses in my adult years. And I've always kept that name and it's worked out brilliantly based upon the type of content that we're providing because we're trying to help people go out on their own and establish their own businesses and acquire their own businesses. So the umbrella company, if you will, would be diomo.com. But for anybody listening who wants to educate themselves and grab some really compelling resources and have a good, good learning experience, visiting richardparker.com will provide them with everything they need. It's just for people who are interested in buying businesses, mainly just geared that way? Yes. Okay. And then the Roy Street Advisors is kind of your part of the business where you're actually helping people versus the educational part that we just talked about. Yeah, correct. That's where I represent sellers. Okay. Why did you call that one Roy Street Advisors? Roy Street is the name of a street in Montreal where I grew up, where my grandfather had his restaurant. Okay, nice. Which is pretty, you know, what happens though, I get a lot of emails, Dear Roy, right? Where people think, where people think okay, this is Mr. Street. That's an interesting last name. Yeah, so it's, no, it's named after an actual street in Montreal. Are you the sole owner of this business? And do you have anybody who works with you? I'm the sole owner of the business. I have individuals that work with me in administration capacity. I had over the years a number of businesses that I've acquired because I've purchased 13 businesses, sold 12 of them. So I've had well over a thousand employees. And in these businesses, as the internet and technology and software became more and more available and I guess effective rather than efficient, but effective, really 
done a good job with a lot of help of automating the entire business. And so the publication side is fully automated when individuals order our materials, the entire process of fulfillment and automated emails that go out to them which with ongoing education. That, of course, is all automated. I like to spend my time helping people. So I always encourage anyone who purchases our course, I never even charge them to email me or I'm happy to jump onto a phone call with them to help them through any questions that they have or situations that they've come across. And so through automation and building a team of administrators, if you will, support people who may deal with any technical issues or my appointments, I get have quite a bit of media demands, whether it be podcasts or interviews, articles, et cetera. So they're able to take care of all of that. And so what's your work-life balance today, would you say? My work-life balance today is terrific. Hasn't always been that way. I used to work 100 hours a week. But I'll spend the majority of my day in the morning handling any emails related to clients who've purchased our materials. I don't work very hard anymore. I stay completely focused on that side of the business. For the two or three engagements that I'll handle during the course of the year on the M&A side, you can't really schedule for that. Because when you bring a client on board and you're helping him or her and their company prepare for a sale, which is a lot of planning that may be involved in policies and procedures that may go into place. So you get that there's a lot of upfront work preparing all the decks and the collateral material takes quite a bit of work. And then it goes in ebbs and flows. Very often it's quiet when there's interested parties or a party, then the amount of time devoted to it could go pretty bonkers. But I have a really good work-life balance. We're 3.15 Eastern time. When I'm finished this podcast, I'll be done for the day. I try to close down well before five, unless it's absolutely necessary. I don't work weekends anymore. I don't work in the evenings. I really have a, a nice balance. I have a lot of leisure time, spend a lot of time with my family and play as much ice hockey as I possibly can book. Nice. That seems hard to do in South Florida though. No, there's actually a pretty good ice hockey community here because the Florida Panthers have been brought some awareness to it, but there's a good community because you have a lot of Canadians that have retired down here and, you know, in Canada, there's leisure activities, hockey is everything. I think cold beer is probably number two. And we have a really good community. I play in an old guys league. I'm 62. I play in leagues on Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, and one usually open pickup game. And we have between 40 and 70 players in our league. Nice. Oh, yeah. I guess it's hard to play outside, I guess is what I should have said. Yeah, it's, it's sort of impossible unless you want to play roller. <laughs> or Yeah. I mean, if you play pond hockey, you're going into the drink, right? So yeah, that part is different. But we have, we have pretty good facilities and they just built a beautiful facility, actually 10 minutes from my house. I have one, two, three, four rinks within 20 minutes of my house. Oh, well, that's good to hear that you have that. And part of why I was asking even like your work-life balance now is as people know, and if maybe this is your first episode you've ever listened to, anyone who's listening now, I just like to have a variety of different types of entrepreneurs, but also different age brackets. So what I thought was kind of cool, and I didn't really know, I figured we would discuss it, but maybe you're kind of look at yourself as semi-retired now versus you said you used to work a lot more. And so it's great to hear. I think that's what every entrepreneur strives to do, right? I mean, if you want to work 100 hours up until you're 70, 70 plus, I mean go ahead, more power to you. But that's not what I'm trying to do. So I, I think it'll be fun and nice to hear all these different types of businesses you've bought and what you do today, even as maybe quote unquote, semi-retired or looking back at that, you aren't you know working as hard and enjoying life a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. One of the things that's really important, I have four children. My youngest one is 21. And we've had this discussion recently 
is you have to pay your dues somewhere in your journey, right? And if you don't pay them early enough, you're going to end up regretting them and having to pay them later on. And pay them later on means you're probably working a lot longer than you want to. I love what I do. Don't get me wrong. I love my work. I can't wait to get out of bed every morning. I get enormous gratification from the two components of what I deal with, probably more so on the publication side and the guide that we sell and being able to deal with individuals who are looking to acquire business because we change lives and we've had tens of thousands of success stories. But in my early years, I was working 80 to 100 hours a week because, again, you do have to pay your dues at one point, and whether it be you're learning or you're trying to make your way or juggling a number of things or trying to get ahead of the competition, which is potentially other employees within a company where you may be. In my view, there's no avoiding it. And then if you're lucky and I don't want to say smart because I try to be humble about all of this, but if you plan reasonably well, you could wind it down a little bit. And you also have the ability that you're working at a smarter pace, your connections are better. While you should always be striving to learn, there's a lot more that you know now, or I know now that I did 10, 20, and certainly 30 years ago. So you tend to work more effectively and can identify opportunities better than I did years ago, because I know the questions to ask and what to look for. So I think the timing and the work-life balance is A, a choice. And also, if you're someone who really loves to work, which is something that I certainly do, I believe that over time, you work more effectively. And so that massive amount of 80 to 100 hours a week gets reduced exponentially. And there's no escaping the fact if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you've got to put in the hours. There's just no escaping it. Yeah, especially in the beginning, kind of like what you were saying. And again, I, th- I think hopefully, every, again, you, anyone can strive to do whatever they want, but having kind of that vision, but like, yeah, this first year, two years, whatever you are in the business, you're working so much because you're learning so much too, right? And then as you learn more, maybe you don't have to spend so much time educating yourself. You just know how to be more efficient and effective. So yeah, thanks for talking about that and stressing that. So let's go ahead and just dive into your story. Why don't you talk about where you grew up and then We'll kind of just take it year by year on how you got to where you are today. Okay, sure. So I grew up in Montreal, in Canada. I lived there till I was 35. I grew up in a suburb of Montreal. Montreal's an island, so I lived on the island just north of Montreal called Laval, which is the second largest city in the province of Quebec. And I grew up in a very middle-class family, probably lower middle-class family, hardworking parents. I remember my mother having several jobs at one point. My father was a classic real throwback. He was a door-to-door aluminum siding salesman, wonderful guy, incredibly intelligent for someone who finished going to school when he was 12. And while growing up, I've been asked this question a number of times related to entrepreneurial spirit or when did I feel that that clicked in or my interest in that. And I say it was probably always there because not working was not an option in our family. So I always had jobs, part-time jobs from the time I was 12, making a little extra money and started a couple of businesses when I was really young. My father was kind of interesting that way. From as long as I could remember, if I didn't have any part-time work, and and I worked at a gas station for a number of years, pumping gas and doing oil changes and tire changes, if I had a job, my father would always ask me whether I needed money. If I wasn't working, my father would never offer to give me any extra money. That always resonated with me because laziness was just not an option in our family. My parents were both hardworking and just set a really good example. And then I went to school, finished school. System is a little different in Quebec. 
and started to work full-time. I worked in a family business for a couple of years in the clothing industry, which was a business that was originally geared for me to take over, but I, I really didn't like it. I found it too boring. And then I spent a couple of years working with my father and actually in the renovation and siding business in Saskatchewan. That was a blast. It was a beautiful part of the country, flat as can be, but the people were absolutely wonderful. They were just Midwesterner mentality, farming community. So I really enjoyed that. And then... Well, real quick, yeah, before you keep moving on, because you said you grew up in Montreal, right? And Yes. Okay. And just so people know, Montreal, right? I'm just near kind of New York City. Yes. And then, but if you're just talking about Saskatchewan, it's right above Montana and North Dakota. Minot, North Dakota was about 90 miles away from where I lived. Yes. Okay. So you, you and your dad like moved there? My father had an office out there and the renovation business was booming in that part of the country. So I went out there to work with him for a couple of years and I loved it out there. And that was in the renovation business. We did work. We did everything from decks and siding and roofs and windows. I knew that trade very well because I used to work with him every summer from the time I was 12. When I was 12, 13, 14, 15, I worked selling aluminum siding door-to-door in Northern Ontario and Sudbury, Ontario, which is near Thunder Bay, trying to give you some proximity. I guess if you go around Thunder Bay by probably Lake Superior or whatever, but it's way up there and it's cold. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I mean, some pretty small, interesting towns and way off the beaten path, which I always loved because the people that you met in those communities were always terrific and down to earth and were just normal people, right? Really just good, hardworking, blue-collar people. Well, yeah. Where did you end up going to college? Did you go to college? I went to two years. In Quebec, you have grade 11 high school, then two years of college, and then three years of university. I went to two years of college. I did not go to university. Okay. But then after you got out of college, you were saying, is that right? basically when you joined your dad and moved out to Saskatchewan? Yeah, I did the family business for two years and then joined my uh, father in, in Saskatchewan for a couple of years. So that takes us up to you being like 25, 26 or so, I guess. So at that that would have been younger than that, 22. Okay. So 1983. So just so people know. Yes. Oh yeah. Good. You're good. You're doing your math well. Yes. <laughs> well, Excel does it for me. But yeah, with that, because it, it always helps me because if you said you're 23 and today you're only 30, right? It's a big difference. But I just try to put people in the mindset of like, okay, still don't have internet. Right. So, oh, no. Right. Still, still don't, don't have internet, don't have cell phone. Like CB, citizen bands, handhelds were in the cars at that point, which were pretty popular. The CB like radios? The truckers use. Yeah. yeah. Like the truckers used to use. That was pretty popular for a while. I knew one person growing up who had a phone in his car. His name was Ralph Schwartz. He lived up the street from us, a friend of my father's, but it was not duplex. It was single. So you could talk, but you couldn't both have a conversation, right? I had to finish talking and then you could interject. There were probably six people in all of Montreal that had a car phone, but it wasn't a cell phone as we know it. It was, it was more, I guess, it was either radio frequency or citizen band frequency designed as a phone. Okay. And so, yeah, so you're in your early 20s, and like you said, 1983 ish or so, where you're working with your dad in Saskatchewan and you're doing that for a couple of years as far as being kind of like a handyman. Yeah. Doing most of the selling job estimations and job management. Yep. Okay. And then why don't you take us from there? Okay. Perfect. So, for a very short period thereafter, I worked for what was going to be my future father-in-law for a very short period of time in the retail business, even the used office equipment business. And I did it for a short period of time. He was a terrific guy, passed away very young, 57 years old, before I, I married his daughter, which was my first marriage. But I worked for a short period of time because I, I really didn't enjoy it. But 
because you had a tendency, well, in retail, you know, you have to wait for the customers to come to you. You couldn't really impact it much. It was an interesting business because the money is made on the buy. He used to buy out bankruptcies and offices that were closing down or refurnishing their offices. And so it was a good learning experience, but also had a little bit of tension with him. Not terrible, but said, you know, there's a very good chance I'm going to marry his daughter. I shouldn't be in an environment where there's going to be any type of tension. I just didn't foresee it being a good thing long-term for career-wise and also more importantly on the personal side. So I left there and I got hired. That was in 1984, in the summer of 84. So that was probably, and I'm good with my date. So that was probably about May or June, 1984. I had a cabin north of Montreal that a buddy and I shared. And I took off a couple of months, not that I was entitled to any vacation, but I knew that my next job was, was like, okay, time to get serious, right? So I said, I'm going to take off a couple of months to spend my time up north on the lake for a couple of months. I had a few bucks enough to live. I mean, I didn't have big expenses or what have you. And I did that for the balance of the summer. And then in August of 1984, I joined a company in Montreal that was in the consumer products business called Sharon Industries. They were in the toy and other infant products clothing and accessories and baby products like pacifiers, bibs, that type of stuff and infant bedding and joined them in 1984. I was hired as a salesperson and they were a real high-flying company. Their number, their divisions were doing unbelievable. They were getting ready to go public. They were doing probably, I'm going to get my numbers right because I wasn't very involved at, at that highest level, but the company was probably doing about, I guess, $15 million a year making a lot of money and went public. The company was eventually built up to about $60 million a year before one major acquisition. But I started off as a salesman, then became a sales manager, then a national sales manager, probably within about three years. And not because I was that good, right? I was way over my head, but the company was growing by leaps and bounds. And I just kept getting these opportunities because I was working like a maniac, a hundred hours a week easily making up for what I didn't know by hard work and really learning, attaching myself to people in the industry and within the company who were much more experienced and smarter than me and pummeling them with questions and just doing my very best to cut down my learning curve because I had a big job on my shoulders. And what was the company name and what did they do again? Could you just give us a little bit? It was called Sharon Industries, C-H-A-R-A-N. And it was in the consumer products. There was a number of divisions. There was a stationary division, a children's clothing division, a children's accessory division, a toy products division. And ultimately, in 1987, that company, Sharon, purchased Cooper Sporting Goods, which Cooper at that time was the largest supplier of hockey gear in the world. They were manufacturers in Canada, some a little bit of manufacturing overseas. They also were in the baseball business. And we bought Cooper for, I think it was 30 or $40 million in 1987. And I worked in that division for a while. So I moved from division to division. I was working very hard. I kept getting some good opportunities to prove myself in a lot of the different divisions. And it was a combination of a couple of things. The CEO and chairman of the company recognized that I was a hardworking guy. I was trustworthy. I was probably reasonably smart for my age, but nowhere near smart enough as the people that probably should have been doing the job that I was doing. But we were growing so fast. They, you know, they just had to put people into place. Were you married yet? Yes. I got married in 1986. And my then wife actually was hired by the same company. They hired her right out of school because they needed a product manager in the Cooper Sporting Goods area. And so they hired her as well. 
I think they hired her for a couple of reasons. A, she smart and had a degree from in commerce from and business from McGill University. And also they knew that I was working a hundred hours a week. It would probably be a better way to get my marriage off to a good start if my wife was in the same building. Ultimately, it didn't end very well, either the business or my marriage, but she worked there as well. And that takes us to in that period of up to 1987 when we acquired Cooper. And right after that, I worked at Cooper for a while. I was Cooper's representative, mostly for baseball. I, my accounts were the Montreal Expos. I did some work with the Toronto Blue Jays, a little bit with the New York Yankees, very little, but almost exclusively with the Montreal Expos. Cooper's sporting goods at that point in time was the most sought after bat in Major League Baseball. They had a bat that was made out of second growth ash. Second growth means trees are cut down, grown a second time. And they were the most sought after bats in baseball. And they were grown in Pennsylvania, trees cut down and then manufactured in Toronto. And so we were able to pick and choose the clients that we'd have from the major league baseball teams. And the strategy was to furnish those teams that were in markets where we also had a strong or wanted to have a strong hockey presence, Montreal, Toronto, Boston, New York, typically. So the New York Mets, New York Yankees, Toronto Blue Jays, Montreal Canadiens, Boston Red Sox were the professional teams that we catered to. And then there were some bats for amateurs and gloves and what have you. But that was really fun because I was a reasonable baseball fan. I had played a lot of baseball when I was a kid. In addition to hockey, I was scouted by the Philadelphia Phillies. Stopped playing baseball when I was about 17, played more hockey. But I, I really enjoyed being in that sports world because I've always been into sports, hockey and baseball growing up in Canada, a little more football when I moved to the United States and always followed the Buffalo Bills when I lived in Canada. So being in that sporting goods world was pretty interesting. I had my clients for the team or the individual players. And so I had some really nice friendships with a lot of well-known baseball players, which was a lot of fun. Tim Raines and Gary Carter were good friends. So I really enjoyed that. That was a buzz because I was going to the stadium every day, watching the game sometimes from the dugout, the equipment manager of the Montreal Expo. His name was John Silverman. He was a terrific guy, went out of his way to help me supply products, even though we had a high demand for them. He made sure that I always had entry if there was this particular player we wanted to get using our equipment. He made the introduction. He was great. So I really enjoyed that. That was actually quite a lot of fun. And then I moved into the infant products division. We were the licensee for Play School Baby, Play School, which is P-L-A-Y-S-K-O-O-L, which is a division of Hasbro. We manufactured and distributed a full line of infant products, pacifiers, squeeze toys, bibs, bedding, et cetera, on the Play School Baby brand. And I moved up as a vice president of that division and that division, probably doing about $5 million a year, quite profitably. And I ran that division. Well, real quick, just and if you don't mind, I'll just kind of try to cut in a little bit more. Yeah, cut in whatever you want. I could talk about this nonstop, so don't apologize. Jump right in. All right. Well, I'll try my best. Just uh, breathe a little bit in between, because I, I try not to interrupt people, but just from my point of view, did you enjoy getting moved in all these other divisions? Because like going to the baby stuff from the sports stuff seems like it wouldn't be necessarily as fun or basically everything you just said about wanting to be in sports and now you're in the baby division. Well, I actually loved it. And when I think back, I loved the intellectual challenge of stepping into something where an hour before I knew nothing and have to become a really quick study. And I really enjoyed it. And keep in mind, this is, as you alluded to, this is before the internet, you had the encyclopedia, right? <laughs> Which was a printed version. If you wanted to have some compelling learning and good learning, I mean, you had to roll up your sleeves and get your fingernails dirty and really do some grunt work. 
because information was not readily available. And I really enjoyed that, the challenge of getting up to speed quickly. And obviously, I was going to have some shortcomings. I wasn't going to be that good, right? I mean, I certainly couldn't be in a a six-month period as well-versed as someone who was doing it for six years or 16 years, but I was going to outwork them. And I was going to outlearn them, if that's even a word, meaning I was just going to do everything I can to fill my small brain with as much knowledge as possible. I found that part always incredibly exciting that you could not become an expert by any means, but you could become well-versed enough to do some damage in something that you knew nothing about an hour before. That enjoyment and that challenge has paid unbelievable dividends in the career that I ultimately went into in the M&A business. Because you look at a business that I potentially am going to acquire, and I've bought 13 of them. Oftentimes, I've known nothing about that type of business an hour before I was introduced to it. And so that training back then in my 20s really paid a lot of dividends. And I never found that to be work. I love that. I believe that, you know, I'm intellectually curious and love coming up to speed quickly in something I knew nothing about a short period ago. I'm here with our past guest, John Austinson, and he helps people just like you find the right franchise opportunity. And John, could you maybe just explain what that means to all of our listeners? Yeah, you know, it's very much like a real estate model and I'm a real estate broker, but in the franchise world. So we represent over 600 different franchise companies. We work with all of those that are in growth mode. They're looking for a great franchise owners to onboard and it's entirely free to work with us. Our clients never pay us a nickel. We get a referral fee from the franchisor when a placement happens and none of that ever gets passed on to our clients. So it's a nice clean model. And we work with entrepreneurs and executives and investors across the country. We take them through a very streamlined process and introduce them to what we would say are the top 10 or so opportunities in their market. But having been a passport franchisor and a multi-brand franchisee myself, I've been very blessed to actually do more placements than anybody else in the country the last couple of years. Well, great. Well, maybe we could just talk about five hot franchise opportunities that you're seeing for 2024. Yeah. And I'll start out with just a little bit of direction. The things that people are getting involved in are things that I'd say are somewhat recession resilient. You know, people will always spend on their kids, their pets, their health, their homes, and businesses will always spend in some regard on their services. And so just thinking about those general trends of what we're seeing out there, you know, I'd say oftentimes these may be non-sexy, non-trendy, but they're cash flowing, they're Amazon resistant, they kind of check all those boxes. Yeah, so I'll just briefly hit on five here across different industries. The first one's one, it's in the B2B space. So it's a business that serves other companies. This is an example of a non-sexy property service business. What they do is they provide concrete paving and line striping, oftentimes think about parking lots, parking decks. They've got national accounts that the franchisees are able to draft off of. I'm personally invested in this one up in the Minneapolis location. But great thing here is you don't have to have a customer-facing retail build-out. So it's very scalable, very much a variable cost type model. All an investment on this one, between $150,000 and $250,000. Now, that would be for your franchise fee, your startup cost, and a couple months of working capital all built in. And then the financial representation they would make is that franchisees average around $750,000 in revenue per year with about a 20 to 25% net margin or EBITDA on the bottom line. We've had multiple clients that have done right around a million dollars in that very first year. I'll go ahead and hit on one more in the property services arena. This is one that's in the dumpster space. These guys, you know, bring what I would say is a white collar approach to a blue collar industry, you know, super fragmented space. And these guys go in and they bring the technology, the marketing, just the differentiation in the market. But they've been growing really fast, all sorts of tax benefits with a heavy CapEx business like this. All an investment here, you're around five or 600,000, depending on how many containers you start out with. 
and then they're averaging oftentimes a million dollars in the very first year, building up to two to three million in revenue per market with about a 25% bottom line margin. Beauty here is you only need two employees to run this business. This next business that I'll hit on shifting gears a little bit is actually one that can be run with two employees as well. And that's in-home healthcare or senior care, if you will. 10,000 people turning 65 every day, people wanting to age in their homes even more. And there's huge demand out there in the market for this kind of service. Challenges finding good caregivers to provide to them. And so that's where this company comes in. The founder has been in the industry for over 30 years. He said, hey, there's a better mousetrap to be had here. They're able to come in and you can run the business with two employees. They set up a kind of third-party vendor relationship model that works as a win-win-win for all three constituents. With this one, all in investment, it's on the lower end. You're about 125 to 150,000 all in. And let me comment that for each of these investments, oftentimes people are using SBA loans or they're using old retirement plans, rolling that over through what's called a ROBS program. So don't feel like you're putting all cash in. I don't want people coming away with that. On an average of a $2 million business, franchisees are doing like 20% bottom line margin. So again, really strong return on investment. Moving along, I'd say this is probably the hottest franchise in America coming into 2024. It's a men's health clinic where one of the main focuses is TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, It's becoming increasingly popular out there. Again, very fragmented market. These guys are coming in as now the largest player out there. And this is a great recurring revenue model because guys come in on a regular basis every week or two. They do offer other services as well, but I'd say TRT is the biggest one. You're all in investment on this one's around 300, 350,000 because it is that retail based, you know, where you're building out the space. But their revenue, they're averaging 1.8 million a year in their initial locations, dropping about 30% to the bottom line. Finally, the last one I'll hit on is just an example of what we're seeing in the pet space. And that's mobile pet grooming, where they come out to your home or, or office, wherever that your dog is. This is a resilient space that's only been growing ever since COVID. One of the things I love about this business is they offer what's called a passive investor model. That's where the franchisor can actually run the business for you. And so you really are putting in maybe just two calls a month, let's say. It truly is passive. Yeah, you pay a management fee, obviously, for that. But, you know, it's a great, great model for a lot of executives and existing business owners as well. All an investment on this one, depending on the size market you go into, you're somewhere around 200,000 to 1 million, which I know is a wide range. Just depends on the market size and how many bands you're starting out with. But then their franchisees are averaging one and a half million a year in revenue with about 250 to 275 on the bottom line. So again, you recoup that initial investment pretty quickly with a business like this. So again, doesn't require a physical storefront. It's a mobile business like a few of these that we've talked about. So we'd love to take your listeners through these, through any of the other 600 that we represent that, you know, of course, we always feel strongest about, you know, maybe 50 or 60 of them at any given time. But we'd love to be able to help even more of your listeners as we have in the past. If you come out to franbridgeconsulting.com, You can sign up for a free copy of our book, Non-Food Franchising. Love to send you some downloadable links. Then if you're ready to take a next step and really dig in and learn more, I'd be happy to get on a call with any of your listeners, Austin, and uh, help them along their way. Great. And thank you for sharing those five hot franchise opportunities in 2024, John. And you did mention, I mean, these are just five examples. And maybe people listening have not even thought about any of those five spaces where you could actually start a business. And you said you have hundreds of different ones where when you jump on that call, you can kind of go through that. And so people kind of find something that they're interested in. So we're going to have multiple future franchise segments with John where we'll jump into other examples and hopefully answer many of the questions that our listeners have about franchising. So thank you, John, for coming on and sharing. Again, if anyone was interested and want to start a call with John, go ahead and check out franbridgeconsulting.com.
And it seems like moving into all these different divisions that kind of gave you that opportunity, even though it's kind of the same company, it's almost like a new company, but you've got the basics of understanding business, but now you just got to understand the details of the products, I guess, that you're selling. That's a great summary. And yes, it's exactly that. Even though it was the same umbrella company, outside of seeing some familiar faces in the hallways, I mean, the businesses were completely distinct and unique from one another. Okay. And so at this point, as you make the move to the baby division, again, are we still in Montreal? Yes, still in Montreal. There was a period of time in the spring of 1988 and for about eight months that I relocated to Toronto, but that was just going to be temporary because someone who had left the business, a part of the company had moved to Toronto. So I went there to more familiarize myself with some parts of the operation. So I, I lived there for, I think it was about eight months and we did a lot of work over in Asia and importing. And there were other people from the company traveling from Asia. So it just made that part of the process a little easier. But I was considering myself that that stage of my life was very short term. And I was back in Montreal pretty quickly. Okay. I guess you want to round up the baby division and where you went from there? Sure. So I ran the baby division. It was very enjoyable. I was able to bring my best friend who was living in Toronto at the time. We've been friends since winter break of grade one. Still someone I speak with every day. He was working in Toronto. He was more product management at a junior level. We needed a product manager. I hired him to come back to Montreal to work, which was great. So he was able to be back with his family and his wife. So that worked out wonderfully. I ran the baby division for three years. And then in 1990, the company Sharon was actually going through a lot of financial difficulty, believe it or not, from this tremendous success. They just bit off more than they could chew, made some acquisitions that proved to be disastrous. And Hasbro decided to buy back the baby division. Even though we were operating under license, they wanted to take the product in-house. And so they brought the product in-house. What happened to me at that stage of my life was a massive turning point in my life. During the, probably leading up to about the six to 12 months prior to Hasbro buying back its division, the company Sharon Industries had the rights for Canada for a company from a product called Worlds of Wonder, which had a Teddy Ruxpin doll, which was a talking doll, which give you an idea of technology. It wasn't really talking. It was a cassette that got put into the back of the bear and it would talk to you. So, I mean, it was a pretty primitive interactive toy, but at that point in time, it was like, wow, right? And even the company's name was, wow, Worlds of Wonder. And they had gone public and I bought some shares in Worlds of Wonder because they were doing very well. And then someone told me about this concept called margin in the stock market, right? Where you can double the amount of shares that you buy for the same amount of money. And this is how it was presented. Double the amount of shares that you buy for the same amount of money. And you only have to pay back the money when you sell the stock after the stock goes up. Sounds terrific, doesn't it? Right? Right? Sounds pretty good, right? The only thing is you don't take into account, or I didn't take into account in my sheer brilliance, is what if the stock goes down? Well, the stock, pardon my friend, shit the bed. I lost $60,000, wiped out, wiped out. I was making $72,000 a year. I lost $60,000. My wife was pregnant, first child on the way. This was in fall of 1989. My daughter was born in spring of 1990. So my wife was you know, several months pregnant. And I was in an absolute financial mess. And I realized at that point that there's only a few choices that I had. I didn't think that I could make enough money over a long enough period of time to pay that money back. So what was I going to do? I could either take the few dollars that I had left and go to Las Vegas and put it on 17 black, but I don't gamble. I could invest in lottery tickets, but I won't buy the lotto. Or 
I can go into my own business because I figured the only way that I'm going to get into something where I don't have a limit on my upside is in my own company. I mean, I was working for this company making terrific money, but there's only so much I could make. I mean, I wasn't going to go from 72,000 to 272,000 in short order. And so when Play School purchased the business, the license back, they wanted me to come work there and I didn't want to. I wanted to go into my own thing. So I made a deal with them whereby I would train their staff to operate the business in exchange for getting the Eastern Canadian rights to the product. That you personally would get it? Yes, that I would personally, it would be my business. It would be my product for Eastern Canada. They would ship it, but I would do all the selling and I would retain we had a profit share mostly based on you know a certain split related to commissions that were earned on all the sales. I didn't have to take title to profits. It was a manufacturer's rep. They were okay with that? Had they done that with other people before? They've done it with other people before on a very, very limited basis. It was not something that they wanted to do. However, I was the only person that would be able to teach their staff how to run the business because I'd been running it for three years, even though they were doing the same product in America, not in Canada, but dealing with all the customers, I was running this division. So I had terrific relationship with all of the key customers in the country. I was personally visiting the key customers in the country on a regular basis with my salespeople. The business was running effectively. And so I had a good reputation and I knew every product, the manufacturing, the costs, I knew all the suppliers, the manufacturers overseas in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand. And so, I mean, I was the guy running this division. So for them to put a person into place and get them up to speed, I was the best teacher to do that for them. Even though I knew that I bring a lot of value and this was certainly leverage that I had, it wasn't presented that way. We didn't get into negotiations that way. It was, from my standpoint, I don't want to come work for you. I have no interest in doing that. It's nothing personal. I just don't want to go work for another company. It's not a matter of the money that they were prepared to pay me. It's I've got a situation. I want to go into my own thing and I'll do whatever you need me to do to ensure a flawless transition to a new person, however long you want me to stay there to do that. But this is what I want in return. And for them, so it was a situation where it worked out perfectly for both sides because they put a person into place. Her name was Nancy Johnson. She's terrific to learn for me and run the business. And she worked for them for many, many years, as it turns out. I trained her, brought the staff over from my company, for where I was working for Sharon, brought over our whole staff. So those people were in place, trained her, stayed there for months at a time to help with the transition and operated out of the same city. So I always made myself available. And so for doing what was best for the business and making sure that there was a smooth transition and the customers were happy, and they knew that I was still on board in a sales capacity, it was a perfect scenario for both parties. And it was never done, as I said earlier, it was never done in a way of someone holding leverage over the other. It was a perfect symbiotic relationship. And so after you present this to them, and they say, yeah, they're okay with that, basically, you're an independent contractor. Is that the idea? And can you just walk us through did you start hiring any support staff or like, how was it different from when you worked for the company before? Yep. It was quite different. I opened up my own company. It was a uh, manufacturer's representative and hired some staff. Well, how did you afford all that? I borrowed my money on credit cards. I had a few bucks in the bank, not a lot. My then wife worked for Hasbro for a number of months. And then after she gave birth to our daughter, she didn't want to go back to work for Hasbro. So she came into work part-time. 
and I lived cheaply. I generated income right from the beginning, although I'm looking now as I'm talking to you and I realize to the left of me here is one of my first commission checks from a company, Randomark, $16.78. That's how much I made my first month. And I'll tell you the backstory of that. I never cashed the check that's sitting here in my office. But as soon as I got the line from Hasbro, I immediately went out and got a couple of other small lines. Lines of credit? No, I apologize. Product lines that I could add to the mix. Just a few ones. One of them included this company, Random Marketing. And so when I look at the cost, my office I set up, I think it was about 6000 bucks. I brought a buddy of mine and him and I did all the renovations. There wasn't too much, but we did what we had to do. The only thing I splurged on was a desk. Believe it or not, in that day and age, and you remember I told you a story about my father-in-law business. Well, my ex-brother-in-law ended up taking over that business. I bought a desk from there. I said, I need a really big, good desk. And I ended up spending, I think it was like $900 on a desk, all wood desk. And the glass to go on the top cost me $500. That was the only thing that I did like that was crazy. But we furnished up my office, bought used displays from companies that were had them in, in their backs and the junk. I just had a lot, you know, knew a lot of people in the industry. So they had product displays because you have to display your product in your showroom and renovated and made a decent looking office. Had a few bucks in the bank, not much. I think there was, I think, five grand in the bank and then board on credit cards. And again, this is, we're talking about early 90s. You're about 30. Yeah, this is 1990. Okay. February 1st, 1990 is when my company started. Okay. You said you they let you rep kind of the East Coast and you brought up some other product lines. Was this all like a baby business or can you just give us the name of the business and just walk us through visually? Because that definitely helped what you just said. But if you can give us more detail on like what it looked like and what the name was and all that other stuff. Sure. So I had the Play School Baby product. I had this company called Random Marketing which had school supplies. At one point, it was one of the original companies, believe it or not, with Sharon Industries. I was doing some service work for them, which I'll explain in a second, because that next piece ties into all of this brilliantly and really put some color on everything. And then I had one line, I think it was Lawrence Goods. They were from Winnipeg. They also had some consumer products selling to the major retailers, more novelty type products, school supply related. And the other line that I took on was called Barton, B-A-R-T-O-N, which was Vancouver, Canada. And they were in the Halloween business. And that was run by a dear friend of mine who lived in Vancouver, who at one point in time was my sales rep when I worked at Sharon Industries. His name was Ian Downs, wonderful guy. So he gave me that line. So in short order, I had a couple of good lines. No, not good lines. They were lines that were generating a little bit of money. And when you don't have any, a little bit is good, right? Yeah, that sounds like it. Well, what was the name of your company, your storefront? That was Diomo Marketing, I called it. And the name Diomo stands for doing it on my own. I spent a lot of time thinking about a company name, and the name had to be something that to me was meaningful, but it also had to work in English and French because you had the French language issues in Quebec and companies. You wanted to be able that English-speaking people or French-speaking people can pronounce the name, right? And so I came up with Diomo, which stands for doing it on my own. And the derivative of that was there was a company in the apparel business a number of years before called OMO Norma Kamali. It was on my own Norma Kamali. Norma Kamali was a designer. And I thought that was pretty cool. And then added the doing it on my own because that's really what I was doing. I was doing it on my own. I couldn't afford a big staff. I had some support people that came on board eventually, but I was doing it on my own. And that was the goal. I'm going to do this on my own. So that's how the name Diomo came about. And it was also worked well in English and in French. And the subtext of that was called Diomo Marketing because I was marketing products. Yeah, but would someone look in the phone book for Diomo and know that's baby products? Like that's what I'm trying to figure out here. 
it didn't matter because I wasn't selling consumers. I was selling retailers. Uh, okay. Gotcha. But so, okay. And you had all this retailer contact information from before. So you're just cold, or I guess you're calling people you already know and saying, Hey, now at least I rep this one product on the East coast. So they have to use you for that. But then you have these other ones as well. Correct. That's exactly. You're a quick study. That's great. So I apologize if I left out anything related to tying this all together. But yes, the products were sold to retailers and mass merchants. So in Canada at that time, Zellers was a big retailer. They were like the Walmart of Canada. They've since gone out of business. I hear that they're back in business. There was Woolco, which was part of Woolworths, which is the English chain. Walmart wasn't even in Canada at that point. Target wasn't in Canada. Target came in many years later for a short period of time. Toys R Us. God, am I like aging myself because I think everyone I've named so far has gone bankrupt. And another customer who came on board further down the road was Price Club that was eventually became Costco on all of these independent retailers. So the company name was just to have a name. It didn't really matter. I had the relationships with all the customers and the key customers. And for them, they were, you know, I had had a nice reputation. I always treated them well, always dealt very honestly and upfront with them. And so I didn't have any adjustment when I was doing the product lines on my own. I think most, if not all, they were, were very happy to see me go on my own. Well, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because you talked about you and your brother-in-law at that time were helping build out a space. Did you just rent an office space that you're saying and you cleaned it up on the inside to set this up? And really, it's just kind of an office space. I guess maybe you had a partial storefront because you're saying, I guess, for people to come in and look at it because you m- mentioned something about that, right? That yes. displays. Okay. But other than that, it really didn't matter. You didn't have people coming off the street really coming in there. That's just for the people that you're trying to sell it to. No, not at all. It was a typical office. I was above a photo lab. Believe it or not, that was a time where you brought in a cartridge of film and they developed your film into photographs, right? Printed photographs. So I was above a photo lab, second story. It was 3333 Cavendish Boulevard, which was like not even 10 minutes from my house. And more importantly, it was less than 10 minutes away from Zeller's head office, which was my largest client. And I had in there, you came off the elevator or walked up the stairs. I was a young man, so no problem going up the stairs and always took the stairs. And I'm looking at it right now. Is that like a four-story building or something like that? It's probably four-story. I was on 3333 Cavendish Boulevard. I think I was Suite 200. Okay. Yeah. I, I Google Earth. And it's pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> but I, it was, it's, I guess they call it Bull Cavendish now. Well, it's just so yeah, crazy. Bull, well, Boulevard, it was French. So Boulevard, Cavendish, it's Cavendish Boulevard. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it, it's cool to see like if anyone feels like Googling or whatever, just, you, you know, you can go to Google Street View, see where your business started, what, in 1990? February 1st, 1990. Excuse my typing because I'm typing in here 3333 Cavendish Boulevard, looking at the front. Yeah. Okay. So that was it. Look at that. You see Bureau Alloué, which is there's an office for rent. There's École de Musique, which is a music school. Lamar, there's a notary on the bottom. And then an education center, it says. So that was the main entrance. Yeah. And how crazy right outside and you got three or four carriages. Yeah. Baby products. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So if you look at that building, I'll tell you, you see where it says that red sign, École de Musique, which is a, a music school? That red sign on the right-hand side, my office was right above that sign. Okay, nice. Third story. So that would have been the second, maybe it was 309, but it was right above that. Yeah. And then you walked in and the building, that, so <laughs> they've done absolutely nothing to the front of this building. I know. Right? That's, that's, what, that's what's great about it. In case anyone's wondering, it looks like, yeah, nothing has been done. There's nothing has been done, right? And, you know, it was pretty funny at the time because I was renting a duplex, which was like a multifamily unit. I was renting in Montreal with my then wife. 
And the owner of our duplex, Roger Fournell was his name, him and his wife, Natalie. He was a young man. He lived on the bottom. I lived on top with my wife. And as it turns out, when I came and found this place and went to rent it, don't you know his family owned this building? So I felt like I was in like thieves in the surfs way back when, like I was completely indebted to this guy. You know, I paid him rent in two places, right? And so he used to ask me, how's business? I said, are you asking me? Like he used to joke, are you asking me because you really care? You ask me because you want to make sure the rent gets paid in two places. Yeah. Or raise rent more. You're like, no. Nah. <laughs> raise the rent more. If things are going well, you can raise it twice, right? He was a good guy and very humble guy. He was really, really nice. I, I could hardly believe how successful his family was. They were big developers and owned a lot of real estate. So this is my joint. Look at that. Son of a gun. Yeah. So you, yeah, you kind of walked us through because I think this is almost the coolest part of everyone's story is doing their first business. So after you you know, finally fix it up, you said you splurged a little bit on a desk. But other than that, were you calling people a lot? Because again, I don't know if we even had a computer at this point. Like, What was your day-to-day like? Because again, you said you worked a lot in the beginning, which anyone has to do as an entrepreneur, I would think, to try to be successful. Correct. So I was calling people. Cell phones started in Canada. I remember July 1st, 1987. And I did have a phone in my car. There was no such thing as a mobile like that you walked around with. It was, it was in your car. It was a handset in your car. Everything was done by phone or fax, computers, there were word processors and what have you. But I mean, it was nowhere compared to what, you know, like obviously nothing compared to now. I mean, I didn't have a laptop or anything. No one had that. I didn't have a computer on my desk. I mean, we had one for word processing. WordPerfect was the program that used to type letters as opposed to a typewriter. That was the evolution from a typewriter, if you will. You didn't have to use liquid paper anymore. And if anybody young is listening to this, they don't even know what liquid paper is, right? So that was if you're using a typewriter and you made a mistake, there was this liquid that you could put on certain letters to erase them or blot them out and then type over them. So I had a word processor. You walked into the office. It was probably about 900 square feet, 800 square feet. So you walk in a very small reception area. Then behind the reception area, there was a wall and then the showroom, which was where I put my display cases because buyers from the retail locations would come to the office as much as, well, I went to see them more, but it wasn't unusual for them to come to the office when I was presenting the new line or new products or what have you. There were four walls, but the far wall was all windows. So the three walls had display cases, which were probably seven feet high by four feet wide. They were beat up store displays from an old pharmacy that had pegboard in them. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, maybe this makes more sense to people too, whenever they're thinking about like why you had the displays and maybe why people would come by your office sometimes too is they couldn't go on the internet and just look at a 3D model of it, right? Like I need to come see it to see actually what I'm buying if it's a new product, like you're saying, hence why you would even need the product. So like if, versus if you started today, you probably wouldn't need all the display stuff. Like you could do it from your house, right? Oh, correct. Oh, absolutely. But back then, hey, they probably want to make sure you're real, right? You can't look at the products online. So I need to go somewhere to look at it. So that's why you would need to have that. Oh, yeah. So walking through that, because I guess it's not ignorance, but you sort of forget how far we've evolved with technology. So yeah, I mean, the new line would come in a number of new products, or it would be if you had an ongoing program with a retailer and once a year or twice a year, you're looking at new items, they would come into the office, you had physical samples. So right now, today, if I was showing a buyer at a retail store, a new something as crazy as a new squeeze toy. We would just pull it up online and show them the 3D view. They'd ask me what it's made of and price, cost, delivery, end of story. They can order it right looking at the computer. 
wasn't like that. They came in, like you said, they want to make sure you're real. I mean, they knew I was, but they came into the showroom. You physically have to show the products and understand like the process by which you'd get a sample, you would design a product, however simplistic it was, you had to send it the drawings of it because you would do hand drawings, not computer drawings. You do hand drawings of the design of the product overseas to the factory. They would develop the product. They would have a number of questions. So they sent you questions overnight on a telex machine. Now, for those listeners who don't know what a telex machine is, telex machine was you typed in information like you type into a computer in a message. It would send it a similar concept to how a fax is sent. There was no visual. It was just letters. So you were typing it in individual letters. And then they would answer you back at night. You'd hear the telex ring in the morning or you'd come in and there would be like 40 feet of paper in the supply room with answers from all your manufacturers to every question, right? And then they didn't understand what it was. And then they were in Hong Kong. It was, China wasn't manufacturing product at that point. It was a lot in Hong Kong, Taiwan. And then you'd have to re-explain it. And then after a little bit of back and forth, then you'd have to go overseas at least two to three times a year to go to the factory to make sure they're making this shitty little rubber duck correctly that's going to sell for 80 cents. And then they would have a hand sample made for you. So it wasn't like a 3D printer. By hand, someone molded the sample and they gave it back to you. And you brought it back and you presented the rubber duck that you sold for 39 cents. It was going to retail for 99 cents. And so this process was crazy. Right? What do you think about it compared to today? Because today you're in the same business. You do the designs on the computer. You send it to them. They get back the design. You don't have to start going to Asia to see the factories. I mean, I used to have to go. When I was importing stuff, I used to have to go two, three times a year. Because you talk about something being lost in translation. My artist, this is a few years down the road, but my artist who worked for me, the graphic designer, he or she would design a rubber duck. And I send it over to Asia with the instructions through the telex machine and a fax and a diagram. And it came back as a bicycle. <laughs> you know, it's like you talk about getting lost in translation. So none of that could happen. You have to babysit the whole process. Yeah. Well, would you, how you said you had a designer who'd help you make these things. So you weren't buying products that were already made. You were specifically having ones designed as well. Because that's a little different too, versus if you're just buying the same kind of standard one from a manufacturer, then flipping it or these retailers would come into your Canadian office and say, hey, I want this. But were you making special designed ones as well? I was further down the road. Here on Cavendish Boulevard, I have a couple of different lines. One of the things that I'll get to that answer in a second, but there's a very important step in between. So what was happening with these products, these various lines that I was carrying, you would sit with the retailer, whether in their, your, or their office, your office, whatever the case may be, you'd put together a program that they were going to buy X number of products in some of the baby goods where you had a full selection of products and pacifiers and squeeze toys and juice cups and feeding spoons, et cetera. So you'd have a four foot section in their store of all your products. Sometimes in the pharmacies, you'd have a 12 foot section and the buyers worked very hard to lay out this program. And they sent that information to the stores and they would order the goods and we ship them to the stores and it was all wonderful. Then I would go into the stores and I knew this was always a problem. It had never gone away. The product never looked on the store shelves like it did in the buyer's office or in their planning room. Or you'd put together an ad with one of the retailers that you're going to do an ad in September and do 25% off all Play School Baby products. And they had to order up more merchandise and you put in an end cap as well of some of, let's say, the juice cups or feeding spoons. And you go into the store and like you don't even see the end cap. It's either didn't get shipped or it's sitting in the back room. Because in Canada, you had and still have far less people at store level 
employees than you would be accustomed to if you walked into a Walmart in America. So it was a very frustrating experience because I'd be selling this product to the retailer, but nothing really mattered till it gets sold through the cash register. Because if it doesn't sell, they want markdown money and what have you. So we started doing what we called retail merchandising, where we had people in certain geographical areas, mostly in our backyard, that would go into the stores on a regular basis paid by us or the supplier, the manufacturer, and make sure that the goods were in order, that they were on the shelf, that the advertising displays were in. Because what would happen is sometimes you go into the stores, there was a natural ad breaking and the point of purchase display was sitting in the back room because they didn't have anyone to haul it out of the back room to put it on the floor. Sounds crazy, but that was the reality. No, and this makes sense because I've I've heard of these types of situations before, right? You said they aren't displayed correctly, and maybe I finally just figured this out. So if I go to Lowe's or Home Depot and someone has something on and they're like, I don't work for Lowe's, right? That They have these actual vests on that say that. Are they kind of doing the same thing where they're making sure that whatever products, whether it's a light fixtures or whatever, are up there displayed correctly? Because at the end of the day, they bought whatever from you, Richard Parker, right? But if it's in the back room and not selling, that actually looks bad on you and they're not going to buy more. But really the problem was because you guys weren't putting it on the shelves. That's exactly it. Perfectly summarized. So it's not incumbent. I've always told people when I was in that business, when people used to ask me, what do you do for them? I say, I'm in the retail business. And they used to say, oh, you own stores. I said, no, I sell to stores, but I'm in the retail business because if I don't do the job at retail, they're not reordering. And so it's not just a matter of selling products to the retailer. You have to sell, help them sell products through the cash. And so this retail merchandising component, it's a huge business today. Pharmacies do it. You know, the perfect example, how often you walk and you see the person from American Greetings or Carlton Cards taking care of the greeting card display, right? Organizing that. That's not an employee from CVS or Walgreens. That's the greeting card manufacturer, their employee going in. or it's a retail merchandising company that's going in and doing the cards for everybody. And so we had that retail merchandising on a very small scale. But the more I thought about it was, this is going to be the future. I mean, the stores are employing less and less people. Their systems, they may think they're sophisticated, but they're not. And this is back in that time. They think that they're getting the right merchandise to the right locations at the right time. It wasn't even close. Right. Because there could be a store that you're selling to that's a lot of young couples that have new kids, right? Versus if they're doing it at the senior citizen store down the street and they bought the same amount of product, right? <laughs> but the, none of it's going to be selling at the senior store versus it's going to be selling where the young couples are that have kids. Or if it was Halloween, again, younger people or not having the right type of Halloween merchandise for adults and you're having more adult type parties, right? So there was a uniqueness to most stores, not that granular, but there was a large element of that existed. Or someone comes in who runs a daycare in the area and buys out every pacifier. And then the store is out of pacifiers till the next shipment comes in on their automatic replenishment, like in a month from now. And the systems that most of the retailers had at that point, even though they were pretty advanced for that time, they were complete shit. Like they really didn't reflect they like to tell you that they can tell you they can get goods into their warehouse in Montreal, for example, and ship them to their, all their stores in Vancouver in seven days. And the buyers used to tell me that. And I had a very nice relationship with the guys. I said, you know what? I'll tell you what. See this box of 144 coated feeding spoons? I'll send it to your warehouse today. And if you get this to your store in Vancouver in a week, I'll go in there and I'll eat all of them. Like it's just not happening, right? It wasn't even close. 
So the retail merchandising was a terrific service because what it did was the following. It allowed the manufacturer to make sure they had the right product in the right stores at the right time. And the manufacturer paid for it. They didn't charge the retailer. So we were doing it very localized. And then there was a company doing something similar in the East Coast of Canada and convinced them to join forces. I couldn't afford to buy their company. I knew the owner, young guy as well. They had a pretty good technology for that time. It was manual, but they printed out every product that we were representing or doing service for in every location. We established a min and max with the minimum they could have of each product and the maximum based on sales. And for that time, it was pretty advanced. And so brought them on board and subsequently acquired a couple of other companies in similar businesses so that in pretty short order, in about a year or so, I had a company that had this retail merchandising footprint coast to coast from Newfoundland to Vancouver Island and 200 people working for us. At what point would you say that was? Like what year? 91, 92. And we were servicing at that point. I mean, we ended up getting it up to about 5,000 stores that we were servicing on a monthly basis. So in two years, you basically went from this place off Cavendish Boulevard to having how many people work for you? There were 200 people that were working for us doing the retail merchandising from the shitty little business above the music store. And what was then, well, now the music store is the photo lab then where you see where the education hanka is. That was a photo lab. So yes, that went from me and my uh, then wife and one other administrative person to 200 people across the country. I guess I'm just trying to wrap my arms around like how you're able to do this because A, you're like trying to run your own business first, but then when you're trying to acquire a business as well or, you know, merge, quote unquote, or whatever, make partnerships with these other businesses, how are you able to do that in that short of time? I was flying by the seat of my pants, number one. Number two, it really became obvious to me that that retail merchandising is going to be like my point of difference. Meaning if I was going in to sell major retailer, Zellers, Shoppers Drug Mart, Jankutsu Pharmacies, whoever it may be, and I was trying to sell them my Play School Baby product or my Halloween product or my other novelties, whatever the case may be, I had an immediate competitive advantage because I could provide the service to them. And they knew how valuable it was. And this service, where you basically say it's free to them? It's free to them because the manufacturer paid. The manufacturer paid us, the retail merchandising company, and we paid our staff. And again, how, how did you come up with this idea? Because I'm seeing what you're saying. Like you were one of the first people to do this, it sounds like. So this is why it worked out. Other people weren't doing it. But how did you get the idea again to do this? Well, we were doing it on a very small basis. A number of companies had sales staff that did this type of work, but they always did it for themselves. So my brother worked for a company called Carmen Jewelry. He was a sales rep, small territory, but he had to do retail servicing in his stores that he was responsible for selling to. So there were companies that did this type of stuff or this type of work, but it was their employees only doing their product. And it wasn't across the board. There were just pockets of companies that offered this, right? Jewelry was a good example because if you sold a jewelry display like that thing looked like dog's breakfast, like an hour after the stuff got set up, people taking chains and putting them somewhere else. It was like all over the place. So this concept wasn't revolutionary, but nobody was doing third-party servicing, where a service company can go to a whole series of suppliers to the retailers and say, we will do your servicing for you. We will do store-level servicing in every store across Canada. So I had a company, one company we were doing work for is a perfect example to your question. Goody 
brushes and comb. Goody was a supplier of ladies' hairbrushes, combs, scrunchies, berets, and bobby pins and that type of stuff. Ladies' hair care. They typically had a four to eight foot section in mass merchandisers and pharmacies across the country. They had some service, retail merchandising service being done by their own staff in probably 40% of their stores. So you take a chain like, I'm trying to get just some exact numbers. And my numbers may be off, but I think you'll understand conceptually. A drugstore chain like Shoppers Drug Mart may have had a thousand stores across Canada. Well, Goody Hairbrush and Combs, they could provide service to 400 stores. But they had a store in Northwest Territories or 70 miles north of Edmonton, Alberta, where there's nobody. So we went in and said we could service 100% of the stores. But what we did was ingenious. It pissed a lot of people off, but it was ingenious. We didn't go to Goody to convince them to let us service. We went to Shoppers Drug Mart or Jean Coutu Pharmacies or Zellers. We went to the retailer and said, hey, hey, you got all these companies selling product to your stores. They're only servicing roughly 30, 40, 50% of the stores. We can provide service to 100% of your stores every month for all of these products. So why don't you go to the supplier and tell them, hey, Mr. Goody, we don't need you servicing our stores anymore with your own personnel because you're only covering 40% of the stores. We have a company, it's a third-party company. You have to hire them to service the stores because they're going to service 100% of the stores. The goodies of the world were pretty pissed off at us, but they didn't have a choice because if Goody didn't do it, their competitor would say, sure. Yeah, so it seems like it makes sense. So yeah, I guess we're, we're looking at a transition from when you started and how quickly it kind of evolved to this. It seemed like it was almost immediate where you just realized, hey, I can make more money or it makes more sense to rep lots of different products and I guess put people in the stores to make sure they're there than it does to have my smaller business where I'm only repping so many lines of products. And am I understanding that correctly? You're very close because really the overarching concept to all of this was I knew that if I'm going to sell stuff to the retailers, if that stuff isn't on the floors, who's going to end up paying the price? They're going to come back to me and said, you know, that ad program that we did with all those juice cups and coated feeding spoons? Sales were terrible. You have to take this stuff back or give us markdown money. Well, it did poorly because it wasn't even on the floor. So to me, it was, I'm only helping my business by doing this. I'm building a massive moat against competitors. Plus the other thing was, if I wanted to go get another line of product to represent and someone was already doing it, my pitch was, I bring you the sales, the connections to all the retailers and a retail servicing business. So it was very, some people would say, you know, it was ancillary sales. It was almost incestuous, right? It worked really well. So we built that business to a substantial before and a half million dollars and sickeningly profitable and continued to do it and improve. We got better. We weren't perfect. You know, you're managing a lot of people. You have to make sure that everybody goes to all the stores. They're filling in the reports. They're doing the work. Different projects. Some people were doing a one-time thing where they wanted to make sure a display was up. Other times we're doing monthly service to a, a stable group of products. So we built a nice business. And subsequent to that, I purchased a company that was designing infant products. I started to believe that I've got to get away from the original business of play school because my model of representation was not something they had across the board. And I felt that if there was going to be a change in ownership, I should be prepared to start, you know, if that happened at some point, I acquired this with a partner and we started designing 
infant products, not competitive to play school at all, but complementary. And some of the products that they had intimated that they were going to go out of that we started manufacturing overseas and importing them and designing and importing them. And that was more in soft goods, like bibs, receiving blankets, which is like the, the puke blanket, you know, you put on your shoulder when you're burping your kid called receiving blankets. It's a pretty funny name because all you're receiving is the kid's vomit and bibs, not pacifiers or any competitive type products like that. We were doing some licensed goods. So we're doing Disney type receiving blankets and sleepers for a certain category. Well, how long till you got into that? Do you remember what year before you started kind of making your own products? Probably about 1993, 94. The biggest impact happened in 1992 when a friend of mine who I'd worked with years before at Sharon Industries, he worked in Toronto, very nice guy, his name is Jeff McCarthy, a very bright guy. There was a company in Canada, and I'll, I'll disclose the name to you in a second, but it was there was a product being sold in Canada by a company called Irwin Toy, which I think probably was the, like, the oldest toy company in Canada. And they were distributing a product. And my friend Jeff was trying to convince the company, which was a Japanese and US-based company, that Irwin Toy wasn't doing a bang-up job for them. That company happened to be Sega Video. And that was at the time where Nintendo had about 80% market share, Sega had 20. And he wanted to do a pitch. He was going to do a pitch to Sega of America and Sega Japan that Sega should open up its own offices in Canada and not go through a distributor, which they were doing with Irwin Toy at the time. And so he needed to get an understanding of what was happening at retail at the stores across the country. Because Sega of America was a massive company. Irwin was much smaller. They were in Canada. And Sega of America really had no clue what was going on at store level in Canada. But Jeff felt that they may be primed to shift their business model from going through a distributor to opening up their own offices and having their own staff in Canada. But Jeff needed some store level information, right? And lo and behold, I had 200 people across the country who were going into stores. So Jeff was a buddy of mine and I really wanted to see him get this product line. So I said, hey, look, I'll tell you what, you tell me the surveys that you need, tell me the stores that you need visited, what questions you need answered, whether you need pictures, whatever the case may be for your presentation, I'll do the whole thing for you for free. It was a buddy of mine, right? And I wanted to see him get this job running Sega of Canada. I said, the only thing is, if you do in fact get it, I just want to have the rights to the product for Eastern Canada. And keep in mind, when I told this, I didn't even know what the hell it was. He said, it's a video game. Okay, but I like I knew nothing more than that. I'm not a, a video or a, a player or whatever. So it gives me the assignment, what he needs done. We had hundreds and hundreds of stores visited where Irwin was allegedly selling product. They were doing a shit job. Product wasn't in the stores. Other stores didn't have anything. Merchandising wasn't done right. We had pictures that were taken with an old style Polaroid camera where you click the button, the picture came out, you waited like 60 seconds for it to develop. You wrote the store number, Zeller's number 235, Hymas Boulevard, Point Claire, Quebec. All these 200 people aggregated all this information, sent it to us. We sorted it out, gave it to Jeff with this whole report. It was a terrific report. I think I spent about 10 grand at that time in wages to get this for him. And my agenda was nothing more than to see him get the line. Like, I didn't know, again, please understand, I knew nothing about this. Like, I didn't know how big they were, what they were. It's not like you just do quick background information like you can today, but I figured, okay, if he, Jeff has it, it's probably pretty good. And I'll add another line to my bag of tricks, right? And that was the end of it. I had the report done, sent it off to Jeff. And this was probably, my guess is like 1990, again, 1992 springtime. 
And I sent the information, didn't think about it. And it was actually winter when I think, well, I'll tell you why, because I got a call. I was on vacation. I called into the office and any message said, Jeff McCarthy called. And I still didn't have a, a portable cell phone. Jeff McCarthy called and said, can you call him pretty quick? Sure. And I'm just thinking like maybe something's wrong, like personal. We were just buddies or whatever it was. So I called him up in Florida. He said, like verbatim, I got Sega. We got to go to Vegas. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, that thing, that, that thing, right? Okay. They want us in Vegas for presentation. I got the line. You're going to do it in Eastern Canada. All this. Okay, so we'll go to Vegas. He said, you got to go next week because it's a consumer electronics show. And I ended up getting the line for Sega for Eastern Canada. That was at the point when, when I got the line, Nintendo had 80% market share. Sega had 20. Sega just came out with the Sega Genesis. Now, keep in mind, this has nothing to do with me. This was just dumb luck, right? My repping business went from like $2.5 million in revenue to $30 million in a year. Because Sega, within a year of that, flipped the market. They introduced that Sega Genesis. I don't know if you remember those old commercials. Sega, right? And my business exploded. And again, it was just dumb luck. So it seems like everything went well up to this point. So when did eventually, did you stop? Because I remember you said earlier that like at 33, I believe you moved away from Canada. So that's 35. And so Sega was doing great. I brought in some salespeople, had a little more staff, still working like a maniac, but was making some serious money and bought a nice house in Montreal. We had that Asian trading company. And one of the original companies that had some of those novelties that I was representing, I bought one of their lines and was humming along. And when I signed the contract with Sega to do repping, I'd been through this dance before. I knew what was going to happen because typically what happens, and especially little Canadians dealing with these big American companies, eventually, if you start making too much money as a manufacturer's rep and or distributor, they want to take you out of the equation. So I had it built into my contract. And that was an understanding with Jeff McCarthy from the beginning out with Sega that if they ever convert any of my accounts to house accounts, that they have to buy me out of my contract. Because I knew it was inevitable. You start making too much money and they forget that you started off from the beginning, help build it. Although I tell you, I could have sent an infant to go get orders for Sega. It was just on fire. Everything was on allocation. We never had enough goods to fill the demand and nothing attached to my skill set. Zero. Like I take zero credit for it. This is one of those cases where I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And sure enough, in about, it was 1996, Sega bought me out. I was making more money than the entire senior executive staff of, of Sega combined. And so they bought me out. But you still had other lines of business, right? Yeah, I had other lines. And I decided at that point, I was going to move to Toronto because Zellers, who was one of my largest clients, Price Club, which subsequently became Costco and a couple other companies. But Zellers was my largest account. They moved to Toronto because of the language issue in Quebec. And I was thinking about moving to Toronto and just continuing the business. I made a good score related to Sega. And then I started thinking about, well, you know, maybe I don't want to keep doing this. My kids were young, three kids at that point. And maybe it was time to make a move. I considered maybe, maybe I'll move to Burlington, Vermont, which was 90 minutes away, nice college town, still 90 minutes away from family. Maybe I'll do that. I could still continue the same business or parts of it. Or despite the fact that I was an avid hockey fan and hockey player, said, you know, maybe I'm just going to move to somewhere warm. You know, financially, I was in pretty good shape. And this was in a short period of time, keeping in mind that, you know, I went into business owing $60,000, barely with one nostril above the water. This is only six years later. And I decided to sell the businesses. I had sold Sega. I gave the merchandising business to my brother, who was a small partner in the Quebec operation. I gifted him that business. I had a couple other partners in that business. They kept carrying on and I moved to Florida. 
All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us a part two. We're here with Richard Parker again. And we paused the interview because we wanted to make sure we got all the information we could out of this guy. We've had fantastic stories so far. And we just left off where you had moved to Florida. It was 1996. So do you want to go ahead and pick it up from there, Richard? Sure. And thank you. And I appreciate you giving me all this time to share the story. And I appreciate your questions. So Back in 1996, I decided to move to Florida after I mentioned I sold one of my main businesses back to Sega. I still had a couple of other interests. And the decision was really whether or not I was going to potentially move to Toronto, Canada, where most of the head offices had relocated because of the language issues that were going on in Quebec. That also given consideration to moving to Burlington, Vermont, believe it or not, which was only about an hour and a half from Montreal. I spent a lot of time fishing around the area. I found it to be a nice little town and close enough to family back in Montreal, an hour and a half drive, so it was nothing. And the third one was related to Florida because I was not a winter guy, even though I'm a big ice hockey player and fan. I just didn't want to live the rest of my life shoveling snow. And my kids at that point were pretty young and figured if I'm going to make a significant move out of the country to somewhere like Florida, it would make sense when they're really, really young. And Florida was also a case where my parents visited regularly. Other people from Montreal was a nice winter destination, so I knew I would be able to see friends and family on a regular basis. And it was a one short flight from Florida to Montreal. So all those things weighing into it were really important. And then from a financial standpoint, I was really in good shape. I was young, so I certainly wasn't going to retire. And I had a few bucks, but I had a lot of runway ahead of me. So I never thought the concept of retiring was not even in my head. I just mostly from a standpoint that I enjoyed working. And so it's not anything that I even considered at that point. Yeah, but uh, real quick, at that point, did you have enough money where you didn't have to work again? I was just curious, like how much money that you actually ended up like having when you moved down to Florida? I was in great shape financially. Could I have stopped working completely? Given the fact that I was 35, there were still a lot of things that I wanted to do. If I wanted to really adapt a nice, simple lifestyle, then yes, I could have. But certainly it was not anywhere in my plans. And I still had in my mind so much that I had to do, conquer, and things that I wanted to accomplish. And my kids were young, and that comes with a whole different set of bills and circumstances. And I also knew that even though I was only 35 at the time, I'd seen friends of my parents who had retired or retired early and looked bored out of their minds, and one doesn't really know what comes up. And then the other part of it, which really weighed into my equation, even though financially I was okay to do that, was you're going to relocate somewhere else. And if you decide after a little while you want to get back into work mode, you have no network, right, in a new area. And so part of the decision was, hey, if I relocate to South Florida and I take it easy for a while, I really don't have any network if I want to get back into things. And the, the other part of the equation was one of the factors that weighed into my decision was there was an opportunity in Florida to get involved in which was a pretty interesting company at that point. It was in the golf business, in the video golf business, which I found quite compelling. And that certainly weighed into my decision heavily. And so I knew that relocating and having something that I'd be involved in right from the get-go, all those factors combined weighed into the decision. And what did your wife think about moving? Well, it's now my then wife. <laughs> <laughs> but she was very supportive. I mean, it was a much more difficult scenario for her than me, right? When we moved... The next day, I was in business. I had had something lined up, and I got up the next day and went to work. Whereas she, we had three young children at the time. She was really, you know, in a brand new situation. No friends, no family, no infrastructure around her or support system. 
So the adaptation period was infinitely more difficult for her than for me. I got up and it was just, the scenery was different, but I was going to work. And for her, it was, it was much more difficult. But I guess, yeah, for you, you don't have to shovel snow anymore. So you're looking at all the upside there. But that is something to consider when you're making a big move like this, I guess, looking back. So hopefully anyone who's listening now can kind of think about that. I don't know if you have any other thoughts about that for anybody else who's thinking about making a major move and with the spouse and trying to figure that all out. Yeah, well, in hindsight, I do have a a lot of advice because I didn't do it well. And so if you're going to make that type of move, it's critically important to make sure your family, spouse, and depending on the age of your children, my kids were very, very young. My eldest was six. So for them, it didn't matter. They were going to the beach. Everything was exciting. Disney was two and a half hours away. So for them, even though there was a little bit of adjustment, it wasn't substantial. Kids are very adaptable, very pliable, and very resilient. So for them, there was really nothing. But for my, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, now my ex-wife, I think individuals who are going to make that type of move, one of the things that I would, well, there's a number of things, but certainly one of the things that I would make sure that I would do having to do it all over again would be for the individual that's moving and has a destination as far as a job or career in place, you have to be very sensitive to the other party and what they are suddenly faced with. And so part of that is making sure that you're, you have a good, especially good work, home life balance. The other thing is probably when I say work-life balance, that extends more than just when you get home every day. It's also weekends and evenings to make sure there's time to check in and check in in a meaningful way to make sure the other party isn't struggling or if they are, to deal with that. You know, I'm a very solution-oriented individual and problem solver, and probably not that I was much more so in my younger days, but was maybe a little more or a little impatient. And so I didn't do an adequate or good job of addressing what my wife at the time was going through. To me, it just seemed solution-oriented. If you're having trouble adapting, you're not sure where to go or with friends, here's the things that you can do, you know, X, Y, Z, here's all the things that you could do versus sitting back, shutting my mouth and really understanding what the problems were. And so my advice to anybody who's going to make that type of move is whoever is the individual that's more settled, and that's typically the individual who's got a career or something laid out for him or her at that point in time that they're going to be doing, there's less adaptation, to really be very mindful, thoughtful, to the other party and make sure that there's a really good adaptation period. Well, thank you for those thoughts. I mean, I would have done probably exactly what you did. I think a lot of people listening are solution-oriented people. So what? Now I got to figure out the next solution instead of like being there emotionally, maybe for our spouse or whatever. So yeah, correct. Okay. And you said the very next day that you were pretty shortly, you were starting your new job. So is this when you started doing business acquisitions or trying to help people with those? Like, what were you doing right when you moved down to Florida? Okay. So when I moved down to Florida, I got involved in a golf venture in the video golf business, which was a very interesting venture. It was short-lived. We were a startup and we'd raised quite a bit of capital. But one of the things back of my mind was, would take you back a little bit, prior to relocating to Florida, while I was completing a number of the acquisitions that we talked about earlier in Canada, I had started to get a reputation of someone who was getting pretty good at this, right? Buying businesses, selling businesses. So I was in an informal way providing some consulting and advisory to friends, family, and other people who just got referred to me if someone who was had a bit of know-how related to 
mergers and acquisitions. So parallel to what I was doing in Canada, running my own business, I was helping some individuals look at some businesses that they were potentially going to acquire and helping them along the way. So back in my mind, after I was in Florida for a little while and the golf venture was not turning out as I had hoped, realized that the world of M&A, it would be a very good environment to get busy in that particular sector because America, obviously, market 10 times the size of Canada and especially in South Florida where there's just a huge array of small businesses, service type businesses, not a lot of manufacturing, but it's a very fertile ground for buying and selling businesses. So we said that I was involved in the golf business. I was working for a company that used to produce video golf lessons. It was a very interesting technology. We'd film golfers addressing and swinging their golf club. and We would pinpoint their club and body position at 12 different positions. And then that information was entered into a computer And it got married up with some pre-recorded commentary from Greg Norman, the golfer who was the number one golfer in the world at that time. And ultimately what it produced was a side-by-side video where you, the golfer, appeared on the screen side-by-side with Greg Norman. He gave you a golf lesson. The technology was wild, especially at the time. It wasn't simple by any means. It was very advanced. But conceptually, it's easy to understand because if you were swinging a golf club and we could pinpoint your club head and body position, throughout your golf swing. Well, there's only certain things that you could be doing right or wrong at each of the different club head positions. Like when you're standing there addressing the ball, either your stance is open, it's closed, or it's correct. When your club head comes back, it's either coming back correctly along the proper line or it's inside or outside. So we would identify these club head positions and body positions and whatever it is that you were doing right or wrong would trigger a pre-recorded response by Greg Norman. And the product was terrific. Here's the problem. We had a fantastic product. We couldn't turn it into a fantastic business because the challenge was we had to create demand. There wasn't competitive products on the market. And that is a double-edged sword because you looked at, well, if there's no competitive products, maybe you become pioneers. But sometimes with products that aren't on the market, you're faced with having to educate the consumer and create demand. And that is just really expensive. It's very hard to create demand. And this became one of my golden rules for buying a business afterwards that I want businesses that have a demand in place. We can touch on golden rules later on. But I was there for about three years and the company grew quickly as far as number of people, offices, generating revenue, but we couldn't generate profitable revenue. It was just too expensive. And I ended up leaving there in 1999. So I was there for a few years, which was educational, but we could never turn it into a business. Yeah. And just looking at demand, I was Googling right as you said that Tiger Woods, I guess he started his professional career. They said in 1996, so it was 20. So no one really knew about him as much then. But business is really about timing too. Like if you would have done five years later, maybe it would have been a big thing because then you have all these people interested in golf had never been interested in golf before, especially like a younger demographic versus before. I don't know what system you made your video game on, but back then it People weren't as much into golf as I think they are now, or or especially during the Tiger Woods prime years. That's correct. I mean, at that point, as I recall, I think there were 25 million golfers in America. I don't know what the number is now, but the interest from the everyday person wasn't there. Although Greg Norman, who was the key individual in these videos, and it wasn't a video game, it was actual teaching video. He was the number one golfer in the world and had been for many years. So for individuals in the golf community, certainly were aware of him. However, as you stated, when Tiger Woods came onto the scene, which was right at that time, 
it was explosive, right? I mean, you had people watching golf that really didn't care or hated golf. I mean, it, it was just created an unbelievable amount of excitement. Okay. So it was people would order the videos to become better at golf. You're saying, and you made this, are there VHS tape? Yep. There were VHS tape. And the way it was is we would film a golfer actually swinging their golf club, hitting a ball. And most of this was done at golf tournaments because you have a lot of corporate events, friendly golf tournaments where the companies, for example, if I was putting on a golf tournament just for promotional purposes or a charity event, you'd have all these amateur golfers who were there. And then they typically get these gift baskets at the end. We call them TNT, trinkets and trash. They'd get these golf baskets of t-shirt, a set of balls, a backpack, but they'd get these gifts for participating in the golf tournament, whether it be a, an amateur tournament or a fundraiser. And so we presented our, our position, our product as an alternative to the same old shit that people got every year, you know, a bag full of t-shirts and, and a hat and a backpack or a portfolio. And we would actually set up on one of the golf tees, film the golfers swinging their club. They finished playing the round, it was, it filmed all the golfers. And the tournament organizer would buy our product as a gift to give to the golfers. So we filmed all the golfers. Let's say we set up on the 6T, filmed all the golfers. And while they were playing, finishing their round of golf, we actually had a mobile facility in a van on site that would process all of the information, each individual golfer. And at the end of their evening and their social evening, they would get handed a VHS video, beautifully packaged, where they appeared in the video side by side with Greg Norman, giving them a golf lesson and was an alternative to the typical gifts that they had been getting in the past. The problems were as follows. As far as raising awareness, A, no one was aware of it, of course. And there's the tournament organizer, which oftentimes, if it's a corporate event, if it's the sales department putting on the golf tournament for its client, it may be one of the, you know, the VP of sales, his assistant, who's taking care of organizing the golf tournament. And that individual, they may have doing tournaments for a few years, and that individual is just used to ordering the giveaway or the giveaway information for participants from the same vendors year after year. And this was, although it was incredibly interesting for them to offer this type of gift, I don't know if you've ever organized a golf tournament or anything, it's like, it's a lot, there's a lot involved. And so looking back and reflecting upon it, it was understandable how these individuals were organizing the corporate event tournaments. They had so much they had to do. It was just much easier. Just order the stuff we had last year. Just, just get them in different colors or whatever versus something completely revolutionary. Although we did book a lot of events and we had 15 of these vehicles across the country, about staff, I think it was about 100 people, salespeople and techs that were going out and doing the golf tournament and the filming. And so we were producing revenue, but we just couldn't produce profitable revenue. Just too expensive. It would be a whole different ballgame today. Number one, you wouldn't have to produce a VHS. They would do it on a download, right? And you could probably do the whole filming on your phone. I guess, yeah. And that's probably whoever's doing the organizer or whatever event. It's probably like the last thing they have to do. And it seems like, do I want to be edgy and find something cool at the end? Or like you said, just order the last swag bag we had from the year before. Because I had always heard this. This was, if anyone hasn't heard of like corporate swag or whatever you go to these events, have you heard of that acronym before? Oh, absolutely. That's what you're saying. And I started to smile because I said, I was, as I was explaining to you and calling it trinkets and trash, and you said swag bag. I mean, that is really the other acronym for it, right? Or the other way it's referred to. It is a swag bag. Absolutely. Yeah. Th these are the two quotes people say for what stands for these corporate swag events. It's uh, stuff we all get is one, or people also say souvenirs, wearables, and gifts, which are, yeah, any event, corporate event you guys go to and you're getting wristbands and coffee mugs and stuff like that pencils, pens, stuff like that. 
that's usually what I guess they, you're kind of going up against versus having that person think of something, kind of a special gift that could work out. So, well, what happened after a couple of years of that? You ended up making just no profit and you're like, hey, it's time for me to figure something else out. Yeah, correct. It was time for me to go, which was okay. The business wasn't turning into what I was. You know, it was a publicly traded company, although we raised money when public before we had a dollar of revenue, which was revolutionary at that time. It was time to move on, which I did. What was the name? Because we didn't even say the name of the company. Visual Edge. Visual Edge. Okay. That's pretty amazing that you're able to raise money for all that. Well, can you just tell me about like moving on when you know it's time to move on? Do you just start losing your passion because you're not seeing profit? Or what's your thought process on that? So the way I moved on, and I think this is a very important lesson for anybody that is or looking to get into business because I was the COO of the company. I wasn't the CEO. There was a board of directors, of course, because we were a publicly traded company. We had a lot of investors. The Hunt family, Lamar Hunt and his son, Clark Hunt, who owns the Kansas City Chiefs, was one of the big investors because we kept raising capital. I wasn't involved in the capital raising, but the CEO of the company and the main investors had a huge falling out. They had asked me if I wanted to take over as CEO, which is a pretty uncomfortable position considering the CEO and I at the time were good friends and didn't like the way they went about doing that. It was sort of backhanded, but I understood the investor's issue because they had put in this money and, and it wasn't turning into what they had hoped. And so, you know, it's the golden rule. He with the gold makes the rules, right? And so the way it came about at the end was really, it wasn't a good ending. I had a contract. They had owed me a, quite a bit of money. They wanted me to become the CEO. I didn't want to become the CEO after they fired the CEO. Then they wanted me to leave, which I agreed to. And then they got really litigious, really nasty, actually. And they owed me a lot of money, which it should have just been paid. And that was the end of it. One of the issues that I had was when I moved down to Florida, I could not establish any credit. I came from a different country. And so I didn't have any credit. And as you know, it takes quite a while to establish credit. And especially, I had no history, right? It, to me, it was like I was you know, considered a resident alien. I really was an alien. And so what I was doing was, we had set up the company. I ultimately was Barnett Bank that became Nations Bank that acquired by Bank of America. But we had as part of my agreement when I moved down here and realized, shit, I can't even lease a car or I can't get credit for anything. And so Barnett Bank set up our account so that we had corporate credit cards. And I had an agreement with the company that I was able to use this company credit card and I reimbursed them every month, which I mean, month after month after month, the statement came in whatever the amount was. I mean, they weren't, it wasn't big, obviously. It wasn't crazy spending. I would just write the company a check for whatever it was, was on the card. And we did this month after month after month. And everybody was aware. The bank was aware of what I was using it for. And certainly any shareholders or the investors were aware because everything was above board. And they just, till I was working to establish credit. And then when I was, and the end came with the investors and the Hunt family, and there was one other individual who has since passed away. He was a nice man, Ron Seal. He was a nice guy. They had turned around and sued me for not paying the credit card, <laughs> which, which was so ridiculous, right? I mean, it was like one month, right? Because they didn't want to pay my severance. So we got into a pissing match with them. Our insurance, the company insurance covered it. And then they ended up settling and paying the amount, which was fine. But it just caused a lot of heartburn. And one thing you learn from it, first of all, I'm Canadian. We don't sue anybody, right? Even though I became an American in 2007, we don't sue anybody. It's just not a litigious society. And it's certainly not part of my DNA. I mean, it's just foreign to me. I've had one lawsuit my entire life and that was it. But you learn a real good lesson, which is this. If you're going to get into a lawsuit with a billionaire, they could just outweigh you, right? They have no end of the money. 
right? I mean, at one point they flew someone down for a hearing that lasted seven minutes by private jet to Palm Beach County just to ask for a continuance of the case. And so it just got into a pissing match and the insurance covered my cost. The CEO of the company was very litigious and he wanted to fight the investors. And I also respect the fact that he felt what's right is right. And we were right. I mean, there was no question. And then we ended up settling, which is so ridiculous because it could have avoided all that heartburn. But that was a real good life lesson. That's one of the reasons, amongst many, why I just always avoid litigation. I've had, that was the only lawsuit I've ever had in my life. It was stupid. So I ended up leaving there and had to decide if I wanted to do anything, what I wanted to do. And I decided that I was going to acquire business. That's what I know and what I'm interested in. And started looking to find something in South Florida, specifically, that I would find interesting. And I looked at a whole array of businesses. There's not much in the way of manufacturing in South Florida at all. So it's a lot of hospitality businesses. And then I found one which I really found interesting, which was a company that was the South Florida distributor for Maytag commercial washers and dryers. And these were the washers and dryers that either went into hotels where they had a substantial amount of laundry to be done or condominiums and dormitories, which were paid for usage, which at the time was like 50 cents and 75 cents for, you know, wash and dry. The top loading units that you'd see on each floor of an apartment building that people would pay for or a dormitory. So they had one component to the business that was distribution of the actual units that were sold to locations or sold to other coin laundries that would buy the equipment. And then they had the component of machines that went into the actual dormitories that they would share revenues with the facility. And then they had a big parts and service component. The component that went into the apartments and condominiums, dormitories, where they did revenue share with the owners of the facilities that was not part of the business that they were looking to sell. They were looking to sell the distribution of the equipment and their parts and service business. And it was really interesting. I felt that it could really build this business. They had no sales effort. The individual who was running the business was an, an old timer who was originally a, had a couple of coin laundries and was a mechanic. When I say mechanic, you know, an appliance mechanic. As I was looking at the business, looking at the numbers, we came up with an offer. It wasn't a huge deal. It was a little over a million dollars. It was crazy thing because this guy, he was so hell-bent. When I did the valuation, I came up with about $900,000. And this guy was so hell-bent on a million-dollar price tag. It like just defied logic. And I, no matter how much I walked him and his advisors through the valuation, it was like talking to a wall. It's just based on a million dollars. All he wanted was a million dollars. And then the longer I spoke with him, and that's why it's so important as we'll get into helping people buy businesses, that it's important to have good conversations with sellers, good casual conversations, because they reveal a lot. It was like all an ego thing with this guy. He just wanted to be able to tell his friends that he sold his business for a million bucks. I mean, it was, I mean, that's what the bottom line was on all of this. And I got to that pretty quickly after, you know, a lot of, when I say pretty quickly, once I had an inkling that that was how he was thinking about this. So then I made him an offer. See, like I realized, like, you know, someone's hot buttons, it was so crazy that for them, the purchase price on the contract was infinitely more important than the terms. And, you know, if I have always been in the ill, could say, hey, you know, in certain situations, I'll pay your price, you take my terms. So I made him an offer. I said, okay, I'll pay you, you know, it was a little over a million dollars. I gave him a small down payment. I said, I want a 30-year note, never thinking that he would agree because I figured I'll soften something in the middle. And he took it because all this idiot wanted to have was the bragging rights to say he sold his business for over a million dollars. Mind-boggling. 
but it happens frequently. So that's where we were on the purchase price in terms, then got busy in the due diligence. And remember, as I've just explained, they had a lot of different components to the business and parts of it weren't included. And after looking through the numbers, it became very apparent that this was a house of cards. And I spent a lot of time, I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at the inventory, counting the inventory, verifying the conditions of equipment that was out there, the parts and service business, how recurring was. I mean, I spent an awful lot of time in due diligence looking at this, especially in the parts where you could have, you know, they were known for having obsolete parts. But along with that comes the point that you could have some parts, you could have 12 years of inventory. And so the more I looked, started realizing this whole thing is a house of cards because there was a sick amount of commingling, meaning they were taking revenue that they were generating on these revenue share deals with these apartments and condominiums and funneling it through their distribution business. Or when the distribution business had any cash flow problems, he was lending the money, the business through another entity, not necessarily paying himself back or keeping books and records. And so the numbers of the revenue in one business that I was buying, you couldn't figure it out. But one thing I knew for sure, it was nowhere near what it had been represented to be. And so I decided to step away from the deal. And I remember it was in Broward County, Florida, which is just a county south of mine, where it's, that's where Fort Lauderdale is. I advised the owner that I wasn't going to do the deal. I was actually looking at inventory in his facility and told him right in his office that day. And I walked out of the office and warehouse. And I remember standing in the parking lot. And I remember this like it was yesterday. And I remember saying to myself the following. I said, you know, the average schmuck would have bought that business. The only reason why I didn't buy it was not because I'm that smart. I've just been doing it a long time and in a number of deals and was able to know what to look for. And it's only by doing this real deep dive into due diligence that I was able to uncover the problems. I'm not trying to present this in a way that I'm smarter than the next person. It's just I had done it a number of times. And realizing that, I started thinking like, shit, you know, I wonder what's available for average individuals who are thinking about buying a business. What resources are available for them to help them acquire a business? And I became very intrigued about that. And even though I had been in the space for quite a while, I never really gave much thought to what other people do, right? I mean, I just went along my way and learning as I go and made a few good mistakes, but never really gave much thought to the, the whole space of mergers and acquisitions and buying businesses, and, and particularly on the low end, where you have an individual that's been working at a company and then decides that, you know, we're working somewhere and decides after a certain period of time that he or she would like to get into their own business. How do they go about doing it? How does the average person do it? And I became really intrigued with this concept and I started embarking upon research to really understand the sector. How did you end up finding this business? Was it through a business broker? A good old-fashioned search. The internet was, was in its infant, when I say in its infancy, it, it really just morphed into the point that it started selling products for money. I mean, it was after the crash. This was 2000. The crash was just happening. I was spending time speaking with business brokers. There was some searching. There was one main website, bizbysell.com, which was very generic. It had businesses listed. Businesses still at that point were really listed in Sunday, classified in the business opportunity section. So your search had to be multi-pronged, which was speaking to attorneys, accountants, business brokers, looking at the Sunday paper and the business opportunity, and also scouring online to see what's available. And I came across this through a, a business broker who brought it to my attention, who I had reached out to previously. Did you bring it to their attention, everything that you found? Absolutely. Did they say anything? Oh, of course. And I, I'm still friends with that individual to this day. 
It was early on in their career, and they were completely understand. The business never sold. Yeah, of course, I'd bring it to their attention. Why wouldn't I? I don't know. If you, if you were like, fuck this guy, I, I could have screwed myself, you know, like if I would have bought it. That's what I'm saying. I, I, oh, no. I Okay. I, I understand. That's what the, I'm saying. There's, yeah. there's no question in my mind that the business broker had no insight into this. Right. I've known him now for, since then, for 20 years. Very honorable guy, very successful guy, closes a ton of transactions, wonderful, honorable man. This was early in his career. I mean, this was well hidden from certainly the broker, a buyer would have most likely would have never found it. So, oh, I, now I understand the genesis of your question. No, I, there was no ill feelings whatsoever towards the broker because I knew without a doubt, I probably sound pretty Canadian when I say that, without a doubt, that he had no insight into this. Absolutely not. I believe you, but <laughs> okay, I, you, don't have to, you don't have to talk about it anymore. I believe you. Well, I'm just going to say from a business broker standpoint, this is why I think it's so much harder to become a business broker than like a real estate broker. Yeah. These detailed insights, like a broker only has so much time. They're, you know, they make money by trying to list a business and sell it or whatever. But it's like, yeah, once you dive in, you don't really know. And I guess the only way they're going to get feedback is through someone like you after they kind of dive in the numbers. It's a great observation. It really is. I don't envy any business broker because of that. Because I've always heard it was really difficult and just brainstorming right now, Mike, this sounds why it would be. And you think about the extension to that. So the brokers have a requirement to look at the numbers, whatever. It can be made up. Yeah, they're that, great. Right. I mean, they're not acting as a fiduciary. It's also why, you know, 75% of the businesses listed for sale on the business for sale websites never sell. They don't act as a fiduciary. They want to get the listing. So you have a mix of a perfect storm for a terrible situation where the, the brokers present their information to prospective buyers based on what they've been provided. They don't necessarily do a deep dive. The sellers oftentimes keep garbage books and records. And so buyers, when they go through the process, that's only one of the reasons why they can't continue with the deal because of lack of comfort and confidence. And so everybody plays a role. The brokers play a role and it is a difficult job indeed. And the sellers play a role because if you were to look at the Venn diagram of why these things happen, why the statistics are so dismal of businesses not selling is because typically businesses don't come to market when they're ready to be sold. They don't do the right preparation. Financials aren't in the right order. Sellers and brokers would be better off to be taking a step back and making sure the businesses get packaged up properly. Sometimes you don't need to put it on for sale the next day. It sometimes takes three, six, 12 months to get things in order and the financials in order. So it's a perfect storm of disaster. That's why majority businesses don't sell. And we'll touch upon those stats in a minute as to the evolution of what happened after this transaction, because that was really a massive turning point in my life. Well, before, yeah, we get to that real quick. Also, there's one other thing that you had kind of mentioned. We're saying it's about 2000, right? So you're 39, 40 years old at this point in time when you're thinking about buying this business. You said you have kind of been looking at businesses for, it sounds like a couple of years beforehand. So were you kind of doing that on the side while you're doing your golf venture? Or could you just kind of tap into that? Because you said you had the experience from looking at these businesses that these books weren't very good. And just enlighten us about that, if you don't mind. Of course. So I had continued to help some people back in Canada that were looking at businesses. And I also found once the, you know, people were becoming more and more familiar with the internet, I just was always intrigued at looking at businesses that were for sale or going to be for sale on the marketplace. So while I wasn't necessarily looking to acquire anything operational while I was involved in the golf business, 
but I had been even considering acquiring something potentially that my wife could run, right? Because she was still struggling at that point. And so when I say struggling, she had found some volunteer work, but saying, hey, maybe I'll acquire something where she could run. So I was always looking. And so in the evenings and the weekends and what have you, and at the same time, trying to just build up my network of individuals and contacts within South Florida as I was living here longer and meeting more people and just always found it intriguing. And so I had continued to look and I, I was looking at a lot of different businesses, more from an acquisition of potentially buying something where or investing in somewhere I'd be either a minority partner or non-operational, whether it'd be management in place, sort of this idea of mini private equity. So I had, appreciate you raising that question because yes, parallel to all of that, or being in the golf business, I was not looking to leave the golf business to do something, but I was looking to something of either potentially over and above that. Yeah. I mean, it's like some people, you know, invest in stocks and bonds for fun, but yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. Like you're trying to maybe help out your wife if she, maybe she'd want to run a business, but if not, you're also always looking at opportunities and really just from a business insight, it would help you in general of like, you're in a certain industry, you're looking at businesses for sale, you get an idea of what these price to earning ratios are for something that's going to sell and just get an idea of like how you're running your business. And if you saw multiple washer dryer businesses, you know, over the couple of years beforehand that you didn't buy, but at least you're, you kind of understood it, that it's giving you that experience of understanding, you know, what's available in other business silos, I guess. Yeah. If you wanted to buy them in other industries, like what those ratios are looking like and if they're actually going for sale and if so, for how much. It's an excellent point because when you're in a certain sector, whether it be M&A or whatever, he said, you're learning, right? And if the learning should never stop. And so that's exactly it, always probing and learning and seeing what some of the ratios are and what may or may not be for sale, you know, and comparing one to the other, which ones seem to be interesting. If there's anything that pops up that becomes very attractive from a, a real opportunity to acquire at a below, quote, unquote, normal multiple, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, just, just having that insight and the ongoing intellectual curiosity and interest to be looking at these types of businesses the same way someone who may be investing in stocks and bond or multi-unit real estate or buying condominiums or buying houses and f renovating them and flipping them. Like you stay informed and involved in the market and that, that you learn and that's how opportunities surface. Or dare we say crypto and NFTs, which we hope people don't do in their free time of investing. If you were to put a billion dollars on the table right now and ask me to explain crypto to you, I still couldn't do it. And NFTs, my son's friend. Gary Vee's his, his friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, my son's friend who lived with us for a while, young entrepreneurial guy, he's a terrific kid. So he was staying with us for a few months, it was a couple of years ago. And he was talking to me about NFTs and he was walking me through it. And at that point, he was telling me how this particular one was selling, I guess it was about $10,000. And it was one of the brothers, there were two brothers that raised a whack of money pretty quickly selling these NFTs. And he was walking me through it and, it was, and the extension of it here. To it. And you know what? It's like, it was like someone trying to explain to me how they're going to split the atom. Like as he was talking, and there was pieces of it. And I was asking him a lot of questions. Like, I'm not the brightest guy, but I'm not an idiot. And I'm asking these questions. And I said, look, it sounds to me like, this is like nonsense. It's <laughs> I was like, felt like someone was talking to me from a parallel universe. And he was telling me he was going to sell his, one of his jet skis or something to buy this. And I think it was $10,000 at the time. And then there was an opportunity and price went down. And I think it's worth about 40 bucks now, right? <laughs> it's like, and that's a big part, by the way. And we could touch upon that of, of understanding businesses. Like I've always explained to people, you know, if the business is too hard for you to explain, it's probably too complicated for you to buy. 
Like if you look at a business and it's just someone asks you what type of business it is and you're hemming and hawing and it's like, you can't explain this clearly, concisely and in a short sentence or two. If it's that complicated, it's probably too complicated for you to own. Right. Yeah. If you can't explain it in 15 seconds, literally, I mean, like literally, literally 15, 15 seconds, I'm telling anybody, like, it's funny because I had a, a buddy that we were joking around right when I heard NFTs. I'm like, the only thing they're going to be worth anything if they're actually backed by an actual asset. But we had always joked around. It's just like, reminds me of Tulip Mania. That was the name of it back in, because I'm just looking this up just so everyone knows. It says 1636. If anyone wasn't sure, like the tulip craze went insane and it, it spiked and then it was worth nothing. And that right when I heard about NFTs, I'm like, this sounds like the tulip craze. And the, the only reason I'm like bringing this up for anybody, like this will happen again in something of else. Of course. Right. Of so, course. so just keep in mind, just because you're hearing about a lot of something, once you start hearing it from someone who cuts your hair or someone that you're friends with that you're like, uh, maybe they're not the brightest bulb and they're saying, invest in this, that might be the time that you want to get out. Or maybe you realize this is just a craze. This is not actually investing or anything of that nature. What we used to say, I remember years ago, people used to say, whatever stock tip you get from the taxi driver in New York, it's time to sell that stock, (laughs) right? Right? (laughs) Makes sense. Makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly that. So yes, correct. But if it doesn't make sense to you, it's, or or any clear-minded individual is probably too complicated. Yeah. So I guess back to your story, when you're talking about you pass on the Maytag washer dryer business, you kind of had a light bulb moment. You're like, luckily, I've looked at enough of this stuff that I didn't buy it. Were you thinking maybe I can help other people with this and make a business out of that? So what happened was that light bulb moment really became the catalyst for me to spend the next year doing a ridiculous amount of research in the business for sale sector at the lower market. When I say the lower market, it's not really clearly defined, but you think of more Main Street USA or people that are individuals acquiring businesses versus institutions or institutional buyers like private equity firms or strategic acquisitions. So it's hard to say the dollar amount, but it's more Main Street USA or smaller businesses, right? And I started doing a ton of research at the library to speaking to, I don't know, God knows, hundreds of business brokers, accountants, attorneys, lenders, anybody and everybody in the space, and lots of buyers who I got introduced to through various business brokers, when I'd call up brokers and ask them these questions and looking online, ask them if I could speak to any people that had either bought businesses or people that they're actively speaking with. And it just became incredibly intriguing for me. And I realized what's happening is there's no good information. There were some basic books on buying a business that were available at the bookstores or Amazon was still in its infancy at that point. You know, there was like the moron's guide to buying a business, which after I read it, I did buy it and I read it and it was like, okay, this is either written by or geared for a moron. I mean, it was just way too generic. And I became very intrigued and I said, you know, I've got hundreds of files and notes on every deal that I looked at and every conversation that I had, because I'm meticulous or some say neurotic with keeping notes related to conversations and strategies and situations I've dealt with. And what did I do in particular situations and valuations? So the whole gamut of the process of buying a business. And I started thinking like, and the more I spoke to actual individual buyers, first people, most people thought buying a business is like buying a house. You're going to get an, a real estate agent. They're going to take you by the hand and show you 25 different homes, you and your spouse, your partner, and you're going to look at them and decide what you want to buy. And they're going to help you make an offer and look at comps and all this. And that just didn't exist. And 
this process of how people were stymied at the idea of how to even find what business is right for them or how do they negotiate the deal or how do they do the valuation and due diligence. The misconception was, well, I'll ask my financial accountant to come in to look at the numbers and that's the due diligence. And due diligence, like the numbers are the financials related. That's the easiest part of due diligence because numbers are numbers. They don't lie. People lie. So when it comes to doing due diligence, the easiest thing to do in due diligence is looking at the numbers. It's everything else. The competition, the industry, the market, the employees, the systems, et cetera, that have to be investigated. And so I said, you know, I'm going to put together a course that's going to take people by the hand and teach them how to buy a business. And it's going to teach them everything they need to know what to do and how to do it. And when I started investigating a lot of these home study courses that were available, either online or infomercial or whatever, realize that what happens is most of the time these people sell consumers a pile of information and then that's the end of it. And I said, you know, I don't want to do that. The money's not really important. I just want to be able to memorialize everything that I've done in my career to that point. I thought it would be pretty neat. And again, I had no, there was no, when you're to your initial question, there was no agenda to build a business here. Zero. I just wanted to memorialize everything that I've done to my life in that point and to put all the information together in a good way that could be available to individuals. And the internet put it up. I developed the website, pretty crude. And the night before we hit the go button on the website at a local company developed the site, my wife asked me, how many do you think you're going to sell? And my answer to her then is the same as it is now, which was April 22nd, 2001. That answer the same way today. I said, my only goal is to be able to help one single person either buy the right business or avoid buying the wrong one. That was my only goal. I never thought it would turn into a business. It was a massive binder of 550 pages broken down into 23 modules that mirror all of the steps of the business buying process and walk them through every possible scenario that they were going to face. And moreover, I felt that, you know, I'm going to make anybody who buys this And again, I said, if I sell one, I'll be thrilled. But anybody who buys this, I want to give them the ability to pick up the phone and call me and ask me any questions if they run into trouble or have any questions or are not sure what to do. I don't want this to be an information product that just you send out people a pile of information and leave it to them to figure it out. I really wanted to offer this hand-holding type of support to people. And I didn't want to charge them, right? So, I mean, I know you're going to ask me a bunch of questions related to it. Lo and behold, from that, we've, you know, you fast forward, we sold 100,000 copies of this thing and turned it into a crazy business, which is still shocking to me. But it's also the most gratifying thing that I do. And that journey from that April 23rd, 2001, of course, the materials get updated all the time. It just started to get more and more profile. I started writing tons of articles related to buying businesses provided lots of these business for sale websites with content that led to people acquiring or getting to our website and then acquiring the materials. I was trying to really learn about the internet and the marketing side of things, which I always found compelling and was having a blast doing it because people from all over the world were finding our materials. And keep in mind, this was in the earliest days of pay-per-click and online ads. Google at that point wouldn't even allow advertisements on their search engine. So this was really in its infancy. So I guess I'm one of the original individuals selling information online, which is over 20 years, right? And so that part is pretty crazy and pretty fun. And as materials started to get bought, and I 
people were emailing me and I'd get onto the phone and answer the question. And I never charged people. My, this was like a labor of love and I just wanted to help people. I just never anticipated that it would turn into what it has. And what was going on was I was learning as we were going, I started doing a lot of surveys with clients and non-clients that started doing some seminars. Still very intrigued by this whole space. And we did one survey where we surveyed 1,004 prospective business buyers, asked them what are their biggest concerns related to buying a business from finding out the seller cooked the books or not being able to get financing or negotiating the transaction or conducting the due diligence or making sure the business is right for me. And we asked them to articulate one and 74% of the respondents, which is unheard of, 74% of respondents identified the fact that making sure they bought the right business for them was the single most important concern that they had. So started really helping people along that road of how important it is to identify and what it takes to identify the type of business that's right for them. I'm here with the number one franchise broker in the country, John Austinson with FranBridge Consulting. We previously highlighted five hot franchise opportunities in 2024, and we're ready to give you five more hot franchise opportunities. So what do you have for us, John? Austin, as we shared before, we have never seen so much interest in franchising. We truly believe it's a better path to business ownership for so many out there. And we're seeing unprecedented levels of interest across the country. We're seeing most of this interest in things outside of food, outside of hotels, outside of what you think of when you think of franchising. It's everything from home and property services to kids, to pets, to seniors, to business to business. So yeah, to, to hit on just a couple more examples, we'll start out with one in the B2B space that we really like and have had a lot of clients buying into. It's a business that deals with temporary walls. And so these are containment walls that oftentimes go unnoticed by all of us, you know, unless you're looking for them, but they go around construction, different renovation projects. They're used in places like the airport, you know, retail, hotels, offices. A lot of work is done in hospitals and medical spaces. It's very much like an equipment rental business and the walls actually pay for themselves in 70 days. So it creates somewhat of a passive revenue model. You, your team puts them in, takes them out at the end, but you're collecting monthly uh, revenue along the way. Like some of the others we've talked about, there's no brick and mortar retail space, maybe just storage on the back end. All an investment on this one, you're between 200 and 400,000, depending on how large you go and how much inventory you buy out of the gate. And then, you know, there are different ways to fund that and to fund these others that we'll talk about. Listen to this. So revenue-wise, they're doing about $2.5 on this business at a 40% net margin. Now, that translates to big dollars on the bottom line. Next up, let's shift gears entirely. Let's hit on one in the kids' space. It's in the youth soccer space. We all know soccer is more popular than ever before. This is one that actually complements current soccer leagues. They provide lessons and clinics and camps. Talk about you know that feel-good community aspect. They've been in business over 20 years. They started out with 14 corporate locations. A great team, great technology platform. All an investment on this one is only between 100000 and 150. It's kind of on the lower end, but their corporate locations, which is what they point to for financial representation, they're doing close to one and a half million a year, and the margins are in the 25 to 30% range. Everyone knows I wrote a book called Non-Food Franchising. My whole focus is in areas outside of food, but every now and then there's one in the food space that we like, and there is one, it's a donut food truck, and it flies in the face of all the things I usually don't like about food. You know, it's a lower investment, you only need two employees, you set the operating hours, and then they have very high margins because the donut batter literally doesn't go bad for a full year. It's pretty amazing once it's made up. Very simple from an equipment standpoint. It's not like your traditional food truck. Very basic. They're selling high margin items like coffee and lemonade and donuts. But you park these at outlet centers, office parks, high school football games, private events. All an investment, you're looking at about 200000 
And they're also doing about 200,000 in revenue, but they're doing that at an 85% bottom line margin. Now, if you pay a manager to run the business, which most of our clients do, that probably drops closer to 60% bottom line, but still outstanding, outstanding return. Fourth, shifting gears yet again, longevity has never been more popular. You know, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning about it. And I continue to see more and more airtime given to anti-aging solutions. And this is a business that capitalizes on that. It's anti-aging, but they focus on hormone replacement, peptides, IVs, vitamin injections. It competes very well against your traditional med spa. It's a membership model, recurring revenue. You know, a business like this that is a physical retail location, it's going to carry a higher price tag. Your all-in investment on this one, I'd say, is around 400, 500,000 per location. But the revenue that these are kicking off is between one and a half and two million each. Finally, we're going to talk about one that's a passive investor model. It's in the insulation space. So insulation is a $50 billion industry. Almost no one can name a brand in there. It's a very blue collar industry. And these guys are bringing a white collar approach to that industry. They've got all sorts of proprietary nature and items around the business. More and more insulations move into spray foam for a variety of reasons. That's where these guys play. All an investment on this one, depending on the size market, it could be anywhere from 200,000 all the way up to a million. It doesn't require any physical location other than maybe storage on the back end. The revenue on this one, they're doing a little over $2 million a year, dropping 500000 to the bottom line. Again, the franchisor is running it for you. So I know I went through this pretty quickly, but to recap, we hit on that first one that's the temporary wall-type business. The next one was the youth soccer opportunity. Then we talked a little bit about the donut food truck and then the anti-aging longevity business. And then finally, the spray foam insulation passive model. So these are just a small, small sampling of the types of opportunities our clients are getting into, the types of opportunities that many of your past listeners that I had have heard my episode last year, these are the types of things that they're getting involved in. So we'd love to be able to help any of you, I'd say is the next step, come out to our website, frambridgeconsulting.com, sign up for a free copy of our book, Non-Food Franchising. And if you're ready to take a next step, we'd love to jump on a call. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you for going through those five businesses. Again, that's why I love having entrepreneurs on just to hear all these different types of businesses. Cause then you start thinking a lot of us just think those basic things, but you went over five more examples that I didn't think of. And maybe if someone has enough capital, you could probably even buy the donut food truck, park it outside the anti-aging business. And then you get two for one, right? We're want to get them a little bit bigger and then help them lose a little bit of weight and live longer. And who doesn't want to live longer? So thanks for bringing all these like creative opportunities for anyone who's listening. Cause again, a lot of people reach out to me they're scared. They don't know how to start a business. And this is a perfect transition for anyone going from maybe a W-2 to wanting to run their own. So what's the best place for people to learn more about you and your company? And where would they go to find out more about your book there? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, which will be in the show notes. You'd then like to take a next step and jump on a call. I'd be happy to get on a call with you and talk through it further. And just know it's entirely free to work with us. We get funded by the franchise brands. We get a referral fee when a placement happens. We've been able to help hundreds and hundreds of clients this past year, and we'd love to be able to help all of your listeners as well. Can we dive into like the early months of you starting off this buying education business? Yep. So right when you had started, I guess you said it launched April 22nd, 2001. I guess it comes back to timing of Basically, like you're talking about the golf and VHS thing, maybe that wasn't 100% dealing with timing, but this is like, if you're one of the first education pieces on the internet and people are actually searching for this, like how to buy a business, it seems like maybe you said over time you started writing for different blog posts or whatever to 
gain those initial clients. But how about like even the first month, just kind of walk us through, were you working from home? What were your work hours like? And you told us you want to just help one person, but just tell us how it went in the beginning, because this is a new venture that you're starting on your, on your own in the education space. Okay. So just prior to January 2001, so in the year 2000, just prior to the end of the year, I said, uh, when a decision was made, I'm going to write this thing. And I had compiled tons of notes. I, I used to compile it like a thinking tree. In other words, I'd take a subject matter like negotiations. That would be like the trunk of the tree. And then I would take a branch and that would be one thing you'd have to negotiate an agreement, which would be the transition period. And that would be a branch, would be transition period. And then the leaves of that particular branch would be how long does the seller have to stay? Do I have to pay him and her? What do I have to pay them? What if I have to fire them? So I started laying out this thinking tree, as I call it. Some people call it mind mapping, but I've always called it this thinking tree because I've done it in the way of the trunk, the branches, and then the leaves. So I laid that out for, started laying out for everything. And I said in my mind, while I was doing my research up until that point related to the industry and learning about what problems individuals were having, one of them tearing their hair out dealing with business brokers. But one of the other things that I learned, I was trying to say, okay, if I write this guide, I got to get it published. And I started speaking to publishers and coming across other individuals who had written materials, then realized I'm going to self-publish because that was just at that point because publishers don't help you market the book or the guide. It's up to the author to do all the marketing. And then I started speaking to a lot of individuals during my research phase, had met with and spoken to tons of people. And I told them about how I'm thinking about this. And it was stunning to me how many people I met that told me either they'd always wanted to write a book or were writing one. Like if you spend the next little while asking people similar questions about what you'll be surprised yourself. And I couldn't believe how many people do it, had thought about writing one or were in the midst of writing one. And then for all the individuals that were writing that I came across that said, yeah, oh, I'm you know, I started writing a book. It's like, how long you've been writing? It's like 16 years, right? Like no one gets their stuff published because they're just taking forever. And I said, there's no way I'm doing that, right? I'm not going to go through a publisher and there's no way I'm not finishing this thing. And so I said, I've got all my thinking trees done for every one of these modules related to buying a business. When the clock hit January 1st, 2001, I said that I am going to complete this by March 31st, 2001, I gave myself 90 days to do it because that was the day of my mother's 70th birthday. I said, that gave me a target. I said, because I'm not turning the labor of love into a life of labor, right? So I said, I'm getting this thing done. And one of the things that I learned from digital publishing and self-publishing is you could change it. If you find an error, grammatical error, or want to add information, take out information, when you self-publish and you do it digitally, it's very easy to edit the information as time goes on. And so I sat down and worked from my home like a maniac, <laughs> like 18 hours a day for the next 90 days to write my course alongside of figuring out, okay, at that point, no one even sold digital products. I had to get these things printed. So I found a company, as it turned out, they had a rep not far from where I lived to get the binders done. Then Kinko's, which was eventually purchased and probably a precursor to FedEx office, I could print the materials there. So I had written them up in Word. It was 500 and something pages. I could bring the material, put it onto a floppy disk, which if any of your listeners are under 30 will not even know what I'm talking about, which was, again, the precursor to a CD drive and probably a, and a zip drive. And Kinko's would print up the materials. 
And so I was doing the writing. I was doing the learning about how I was going to print these things. At the same time, I found another company that was going to build the website. And okay, well, we build a website. How are we going to get people to the website? And we started learning about this pay-per-clicks, which was a company, only one company was doing at that time. It was called Overture, which I believe was probably eventually swallowed up by Yahoo or someone else, but realized that we could pay for ads that would appear on the internet, not on Google, but on other search engines, Ask Jeeves, Yahoo, there was Lycos, which is another one. So there were search engines that no one even would know of. These were the original search engines. So we're doing all of that, and it was, it was fabulous because it was great. It was all new to me, and it was such great learning. I was loving it. I hadn't sold a piece, but I was loving it, really learning a lot and finding it fascinating. And so all of these things came together, and I was able to launch it after I completed writing it on that March 31st. When I finished the writing, and I write like I talk, it's very conversational. And so I finished this writing. I had the whole manuscript, calling at that point, together. 500 and something pages. And I found a copywriting company, an editing company, and I was someone during my journey of learning about self-publishing and authors and whatever. You said, well, you got to send it to an editor and a copywriter because they should look at it and check it for grammar and flow and all these things. I said, okay, fine. And again, you know, if you read anything that I've written over the years and I've have 200 plus articles published, I write like I talk and, and the material's the same way. The course is called how to buy a good business at a great price. So I send it to this copyright company and I paid them 1500 bucks to proofread it and they send me back the manuscript and I start reading the manuscript. It doesn't even look like the same work at all. It's got a complete different flavor. It's like institutionalized. It's as generic as it gets. It's like as white bread as it gets. It was awful. And I took the whole manuscript and I just had it shredded, threw it in the garbage. Their copyrighted manual said, no, this is not what I am. I am who I am. And I write the way I talk. And I think that's going to be more interesting for people. I just don't want this to turn into a Harvard University textbook type of product because that's not the people that I want to help. I want to help people that you know are going to roll up their sleeves, get their fingernails dirty, have this hope and dream to buy a business. And they're typically going to be down to earth, humble people, some blue collar, some white collar, but all normal people. I'm not looking for this to be a guide for Harvard MBAs. To hell with them. They went to Harvard already. I'm not interested in helping them. They can help themselves. I'm looking to help people who really need the help. And so I threw the whole revised version from this copywriter and editor in the garbage. I actually brought it up to, again, Kinko's to have them shred it. Then I had the website company. So the materials were written. I knew where I was going to print them. Had the company that was going to finish the website that they were working on. We started getting into the conversations about how people were going to find us and what have you. And there was this pay-per-click idea that we could put throughout the internet when people were doing their searches. And we got the website completed and the pay-per-clicks into place, keeping in mind what it took from a courage standpoint to give someone your credit card that they tell you they're just going to put it online and it's going to reside somewhere and they're going to charge you their credit card for each of the clicks that come through. Most people weren't even going online and here, pay for something online? Give them my credit card? Are you crazy? Right? So Hopefully you and your listeners have some appreciation for all of that because everything was in its infancy. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's scary now even thinking about it. Like, especially if you're like, okay, did I put the right rules in place for it to stop charging me after $100 a day or whatever you're doing, you know? So especially then when you have, you don't really know. But I guess at that point, you're like, I've got to take a chance. You know, I think all of us have to in business at some point in time. So 
Yeah, I have to take a chance. And you know that people, we still, for many years thereafter, people, we still had the op- had to give people the option of ordering our materials and sending in a check. And for years, we'd probably get in as many checks or money orders as we did people ordering through a cart. They didn't even know what a secure transaction or encrypted mean. Well, so the pay-per-click worked right away? So here's what happened. So we launched this thing on April 23rd, 2001. The company, the website's done. And they said, we're going to launch. I just told them, how much you want to spend on advertising? I said, I don't know. What do I need to spend? He said, oh, we'll spend a couple hundred bucks the first month. They said, okay. April 23rd, 2001. I told you the story already, what my wife had asked me the night before. And the guy who did the website tells me, yeah, we're going to hit the uh, go button when we get off the phone. And this was in the evening. I said, okay, fine. And then probably, I don't know, two hours later, just out of habit, I went to check my emails and I see an email come in and, and the subject line is order receipt. And I say to myself, shit, I didn't order anything. What, what is that? What's that email about? And I open up the email and I see someone ordered my course like an hour and a half after we hit the go button. So your mom ordered your course? Yeah, it wasn't my mom. My mom just got her iPhone. So she, she certainly was not going to be the person ordering a course. Like she's been using a flip phone and still doesn't have Wi-Fi in her apartment. No, <laughs> but that's funny. And it wasn't a relative, right? Because I didn't tell many people what I was doing. As it turns out, it was an individual in Miami and I'm laughing like as it came up because I can't believe the first person who bought the course is like 30 minutes down the road from me, right? And I called the guy who did the site and I said, I just got this email in of an order, it says order receipt. Like, was this you testing the system? Nope. This is a legit order. Wow. I said, this is unbelievable, right? They hit go on the website. I was in the other room watching TV or reading. I don't even know what the hell I was doing. And I come back and someone orders my course. And I like, this happens. Like, this could happen overnight while I'm sleeping. This is unbelievable. That really was like, wow. Because up until that point, it was an immense amount of work. It was a tremendous amount of learning. Think of how much time I'd put in previous to this to even learn enough to get to the point to say, I'm going to write a course. This goes back, we're now talking in total about 15 months or so, and all the learning along the way and the writing and whatever. And it was like, holy smokes, I cannot believe this. I still, when I think about it, it's still mind boggling to me. And so, yeah, the first order came in and consistently after that, I started reaching out to people who bought the course, calling them. I wanted to know why they purchased it, what part of our website gave them the incentive to think about ordering it. Was there anything in particular? Because one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we offered was any home study materials that I had purchased over the years, whether it be in real estate or other areas. As I mentioned earlier, people would send you a pile of information and then that was the end of it. I said, I want people to feel comfortable, completely comfortable buying this material not only the fact of buying it online, I want them to make sure that they know upfront exactly what they're getting. So you don't open up the box and become disappointed. So a couple of things I did, first of all, is we put the entire detail of every single subject that was covered in the 540 pages online in what we call this course outline, which on its own was pages and pages. So they would know in every section, every single subject matter that was covered. The other thing was I wanted people to have a, a lifetime guarantee. You're going to buy this material. If you don't love it, you're not thrilled. You change your mind if it doesn't meet your expectations. I don't want people to ever think that they're getting any concerned about getting ripped off. I don't need the money, number one. And to me, it's the right way of doing business, number two. And still offer to this day a lifetime warranty. In other words, at any point in time, someone's not happy. You send us in an email, we'll give you your money back, even with a download, even in the electronic version. You don't have to delete it. Do whatever you want. I trust people. 
And so I really wanted them to feel comfortable because that's just my outlook on life. And I don't want people to feel that they're going to give someone their money and not get what they're promised. And that's a big thing that happens online today is you get these alleged gurus who don't know bugger all about the subject matter, but they're real good experts at marketing and they sell products to unsuspecting people for hundreds and thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars and people become disappointed and those products are never guaranteed. And so I just would never go down that road. I wanted people to feel 100% comfortable and back them up. So I started doing calls with people who were ordering the course and we're getting in orders most days and calling them what triggered you to purchase this. And we had a couple of common themes, which were, were really made me feel really, really good, which was one, people felt that they were dealing with someone who was sincere, right? Because we tried to have as much personal messaging as we could on the website. And that really made me feel really good about that because I wanted people to get that message. And the other thing was related to the course outline and of course the guarantee. And the other thing that people mentioned was they didn't realize how much they don't know. And that's always a problem for people that are going about a new project. The danger is if you don't know how much you don't know, and you compare and contrast that to individuals who know their weaknesses or do know how much they don't know, the second group is usually infinitely more successful because the first group, they shoot themselves in the foot. And so it was just an ongoing labor of love and started getting orders from other countries. Well, what was the website that you're listed everything? Diomo, D like David. The name of my company is diomo.com, D like David, I-O-M-O. And we have a sister website called richardparker.com, which we've published a bunch of other articles, free articles that people use as, as a resource. So that's just evolved over time. Right. You had mentioned that. I just, I knew there was kind of two websites. And the only reason I was asking is I was using the Wayback Machine to go ahead and look at what it looked like initially, if you're familiar with that. I don't know if you are or not. Yeah, I am very familiar with it. Yep. Yeah. Cause it's always fun for me to like listen to guests and see like, okay, well, what did it look like then? Cause a lot of people, no matter where you are in business, they could look at your website now and like, oh, I can never do that or whatever. But it's like, you got to start somewhere. So I think it always helps if anyone's listening and you want to start a business and you know someone who's been in business for a while and has a website, just go back and look at it and realize that, hey, it wasn't always what it looks like today. It took years and years to yeah evolve to where it is now. And if you look at two weeks, we're doing a complete redesign on our website. But I think the point that you bring up, you've articulated related to website, but I think there's a bigger point here that you've identified. Whether it's a website or whether someone's looking at someone's business that seems to be flourishing pick an example, I don't know, an HVAC company and you're thinking of getting into that business, you look, well, I don't know if I can get into business. I'm thinking about this other individual. They have 30 techs or whatever it is, or something as a, you know, a dry cleaner. And they say, well, they have five stores and every business started as a small business. And just getting into the game is the biggest step you have to take because it may not be perfect. And there's things that you're going to change over time. And as you look back and say, wow, I wish I would have known then what I know now, but that's just not the way life works. You evolve, you make corrections. Sometimes you're flying by the seat of your pants. There's no such thing as perfect. If you just keep spending your time, and that's why like in the world in which I operate, 90% of the people who begin the search to buy a business never buy a business, which is crazy because for a whole host of reasons, which we can cover later on, but one of the most important pieces to that is people have this ready, aim, 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 aim mentality. And those are not the pioneers. Those are not the entrepreneurs. 
And so whether it be looking at a website and saying, oh my God, I can't go into that. Just look how fancy their website is. Well, use the Wayback tool and realize that it was, you know, it was dog's breakfast or a high, you know, an elementary school science project when it first started out, because ours was certainly that way. You start at the beginning. Everybody starts at the beginning. And so having the mindset to understand that if you don't get into the game, if you stay on the sidelines and you keep waiting for the perfect moment, no matter what that is, it transcends business. I mean, if you wait for the right time to get married or the right time to have kids or the right time to potentially relocate or the right time to say, you know, screw it, I'm taking a year off for sabbatical and I'm going to travel the world or you wait for the right time to acquire a business or start a business or whatever the case may be. If you wait for the right time, the right time never materializes because you could always talk yourself out of doing anything. And so when it comes to the whole world of buying businesses, getting into it, is more important at the beginning than getting it right. Because you may not get the right business. You make a mistake and you dust yourself off and you go and it's what you, you know, everybody tells you, of course, that, you know, it's how you handle your failures and how you deal with them because you're going to make mistakes. You just try to avoid making big ones, but you've got to get into the game. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you got to get into the game. You can't stay on the sidelines. I guess going over the last 20 years, you just slowly just kept expanding this education business. And I don't know if there's an easy way to kind of summarize what it's been like over the last 20 years. Yeah, we kept expanding it. We write the materials, update them constantly. We sold over 100,000 copies of the material. I never thought it would turn into this, into a business. I still make myself available for free to everybody who wants a, has a question, wants to email me, jump on a phone. I've had some terrific successes in my life and some horrible failures. But this business still is the most gratifying thing that I do because I've helped tens of thousands of people. We've written industry-specific guides, how to buy a good gas station, a retail store, a liquor store, an Australian business, the UK business, so offshoots to that. Every, so the summary is it's turned into a wonderful business, which I never anticipated. It's given me incredible gratification, and it's helped so many people. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal. It's just been a beautiful life's work. And it continues to sell, and there's times I don't spend a whole lot of time doing it. We have good support people. I still answer emails every day. And then that's led to other things that we can go into. We started doing more M&A work and brokerage and then actual investing. And so to summarize how to buy a good business at a great price, from a labor of love, it's turned into a fantastic business. And more important than that, it's helped tens of thousands of people turn a hope and a dream of owning a business into reality. So I take incredible gratification from that. How about like a, a personal standpoint? I, I'm kind of surprised. It sounds like everything, after you made it, maybe over the hurdle of it, it sounds like this business is going to work because when your wife asks, like, you know, how much are you going to sell or whatever, like even the first year, was it profitable and it's been profitable ever since? And then when did your marriage like end up dissolving? Well, my marriage dissolved before I launched the course. Okay. But when I tell to my wife, asked me the question, that was wife number two, who's still my wife today. And love of my life. And we've been married for 22 years. So that's great. And have one son of three children from my prior marriage. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, yeah, because that, that kind of helps clarify. So right after you moved down to Florida, you said that was 96. And then you talked about like 2001 starting this business. So y'all got divorced between 96 and 2001. Was it right after you moved down to Florida? Yeah. Not long after. Not long after. It was about a, a year and a half later. I just like to, if you don't mind, just talk about it a little bit, because that way anyone who's listening, who's going through that, I think you've already gave us practical thoughts on, you know, if you're moving with your spouse and you're the one why we're moving. Okay. So I'm happy to touch upon that briefly. The fundamental reason of the breakdown was really, you know, we had moved from Canada, moved down here, and 
there was no outside distractions. When I say distractions, I don't mean family and friends being distractions, but there was no support system or anything else. We were with each other all the time. And I think it was just a case of realizing, you know, we don't like each other that much. <laughs> you know, it's like you might love someone, but it's not going to work if you don't like them. I've heard that recently, actually, several times. Just you can love somebody, but you got to make sure you actually like, like them as well. So, Well, if you're going to spend time with them, if you take your friends, the reason why you spend time with your friends, and I, I have the same friends since grade one, is because you like them, right? And you enjoy spending time with them. And it's never antagonistic. And I've had this discussion on several occasions, and actually with a close friend recently was going through some difficult times, and we started getting to this whole conversation about marriage takes work. And I think that's complete bullshit. Your friendships don't take work. You might have some disagreements over time, but you get together, you enjoy. Guys, it's a little easier for guys because we're pretty shallow. <laughs> don't have very deep conversations often, but when you get together with your friends, everything is good. You have nice conversation. There's good back and forth. If you have a disagreement, you have a real nice disagreement and you could debate things, but there's not this lingering antagonism, right? Or confrontational feelings with one another. That's the way a friendship works. It's a good relationship. It does not take work. If you're, I'm not trying to be a marriage counselor, but to me, it's very simple. If your marriage takes work, you're in the wrong marriage. Shouldn't take work. You could have issues, financial discussions or discussions related to how you want to raise kids or certain plans that you want to have. Of course, but those are conversational and some of them could be even disagreements, but you got to be able to disagree in a good way, right? And respect each other in a good back and forth. But if it takes real work, it's not a good relationship. Now, again, that's just my opinion. I just think if a marriage takes work, it's a shit marriage and get out of it. That's, again, sorry to be so blunt, but I just can't get my head around the whole like, concept of how a relationship, not a transactional relationship in business or whatever, but if you have a personal relationship with someone and it's supposed to be a meaningful relationship, if it takes work, it's not a good relationship. It probably never will be. I mean, it makes sense to me. Because I, I haven't been divorced, so I can't like speak to that. But I, I definitely understand. Yeah, everything you said with the friendship stuff, even with your marriage, your first marriage, just like no matter what, maybe she was going to resent you for the rest of your life because you moved down to Florida. They're never going to let go of that. So if you have one person who's always bickering and going to be upset with you, you're going to stop being friends with that person. Correct. You're talking about friendships. And it's the same thing with a marriage based on what you're saying, kind of my thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I mean, if you have a friendship and it's not a good friendship or it's exhaustive, or it's very one-sided or whatever, you just end the friendship, right? And that's the end of it. You know, my ex-wife is a wonderful ex-wife, the optimal word being ex, but she's a nice lady, wonderful person. We see each other regularly. One of my daughters has a child, so new grandparents, and we share that. And been married for 22 years. My current wife and I have a 21-year-old. My ex-wife is actually my son's godmother. So we had this wonderful relationship. We never got in the way of raising the kids. We always put the kids' interests ahead of our own, never acted selfishly. So the divorce, by and large, was very good, right? As good as a divorce could be. I'm happy it's divorced. But my wife and I now are married 22 years. Our marriage doesn't take any work whatsoever. Zero. I mean, I remember the last time we even had a disagreement. And people say, oh, you know, it's healthy to have disagreement or fight. I don't know. Why? Like, why? We get along absolutely fabulous. We have some things that we may have difference of opinions on, and we make sure we you know, have that, those conversations, both sides, and in a good way. But yeah, I just don't understand that whole concept of, and especially life being so short. I mean, you want to be in good relationships. Some relationships are transactional in business. You do your best. They don't have to be perfect. But in the personal relationships, you, know, you have to recognize what good looks like and also what crap looks like. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good, at least from 
this conversation that ended on good terms, because unfortunately, it seems like it almost never does. At some people, it's just like everything in their life kind of shut down after that. If they're like, okay, didn't realize they're spending too much time or whatever. But if you both mutually kind of agree and can act like adults with the children and figure everything else out, then I'm glad it worked out for you. So it's never great when people split up or whatever. I mean, if you have children, then the people that go through a real rough divorce is because they're selfish, right? If you put your kids first, then it shouldn't be that difficult. But people go through difficult ones and I don't judge anybody. So it's unfortunate. I just know from where I stand or how I look at it, it's much easier if you do it in a good way and you put your ego and selfishness aside and make sure you do the right thing for your kids and you do the best you can. So thank you for, again, summarizing that and, you know, what you've done over the last 20 years. I don't know if you have any last thoughts before we get off the call for anyone who's listening. And again, thank you for spending so much time and diving deep into your story here. Of course. I mean, I've, first of all, I've really enjoyed our time together. I'm glad you, and, and I appreciate the time that you've afforded me as well. There's some other segments to my business life that I've got involved with more in the intermediary side and representing sellers. And then my time with the Dalio family office that I was hired by Ray Dalio to mentor a family member to acquiring businesses. But you know, the thing that I want to really impart to people related to this whole overarching concept of acquiring a business, whatever it may be, is number one, it's doable. I mean, anybody can do it. Not everybody will, but anybody can do it. And I really feel strongly that if anybody has any inkling about being an entrepreneur, whatever that may look like, that could be starting a business, buying a business. I'm a big proponent of buying a business because I've seen that works infinitely more often than a startup because the failure rate is so high. So I'm a big believer in, in buying an existing business. So I would just tell anybody that if you have any inclination to acquire a business or get it become your own boss, you just owe it to yourself to investigate it, to see what's involved. You may decide not to for whatever reasons, that's personal, but at least take the step to do your research, get some good material to help you, whether it be material that we sell or someone else's, that the material is immaterial. It's acquiring the knowledge. And again, you owe it to yourself to at least investigate whether or not it's something that makes sense for you. Because you don't want to go through your whole life with a regret about not trying to become a business owner. So I really urge people to investigate it wholeheartedly, the whole sector of entrepreneurship. Just don't stand on the side. At least go through the process of learning about a bunch of different things. Then you could decide whether or not you want to do any one of them or none of them. But jump in and take a look at what's out there because I've met thousands of business owners over my life. And I can assure you that most of them are not sending men to the moon. They're no smarter than you or I. They've just, they've taken a step. All right, everybody. We're actually here back for part three with Richard Parker. He left us with some great words of wisdom there. And I figured, why not just go ahead and just jump into stories? Well, you kind of give us a quick summary of the last 20 years, but I figured we could dive in more detail, maybe even help these people listening a little bit more. I think like actual examples of you buying businesses, because I believe you said you bought quite a few over the years, might be a good way for us to just jump into examples of how you've helped people or your experiences in buying businesses that might help people. So do you want to pick up there, Richard, for us? If you go back to 2008, what happened, the whole M&A world was turned on its head. Deal flow dropped significantly, getting deals to the finish line. Everything stopped. And it really was a lot of carnage. And I looked at that time and I thought it was a very opportunistic time for me to start acquiring businesses and see where there were some real opportunities. 
And I found a company that was based in the West Coast of the United States that provided legal document preparation services for individuals that were going to represent themselves in court. The most popular one, the version is called LegalZoom, and they do some pretty standard forms. But I found a company that was based in the Western United States. The good news is they were inundated with sales leads. The bad news was they had no clue what they were doing. They couldn't manage the leads. They were going through people at the speed of light. They couldn't maintain any staff. It was an organizational mess. And I was very intrigued by the fact that the company was receiving 1,500 incoming calls a day from potential clients. And this was, when you say people that are representing themselves in court, it's called pro se representation. And that could be in cases such as uncontested divorce or contested divorce, child support, guardianship, bankruptcy. And they were getting all these calls and and were doing the uh, document preparation for individuals that they would present to the court when they were completed. And I looked at that business and the company needed money. It needed better staff, support people and document preparers. It didn't need much in the sales department or marketing department because they're getting 1,500 leads a day. Bought the business for not a whole lot of money down. It was really just to take out the current owner because he was all over the place. And it was just a matter of time that he was going to go out of business. He owed a lot of money to document preparers and salespeople and other individuals. And so it came up with a formula that said, hey, look, you're on a fast track to going bankrupt. As crazy as that sounds, given they had all these incoming inquiries, they just couldn't handle them and manage them. They said, it's a matter of time that you're going to go bankrupt. So I'll pay you a small amount of money that you could put into your pocket and I'll clean up all of the debt. And it wasn't a big transaction. And because it was a private transaction, I can't give the exact numbers, but it was not a huge dollar amount. And especially because I knew I'd have to invest a lot in the business. Well, real quick, what, what was the name of the business? It was Legal Aid Document Preparation Services. Well, yeah, I just find putting a name so people are listening, you know, at least just helps that part. I understand that you say it's a small amount, but are we like talking, because at this point, you're a millionaire, right? I don't know what, like yes. a little, are we talking like 10,000, 100,000, a million? Under a million dollars. Okay, to acquire or yeah, just to... Yeah, okay, when, the whole package to acquire it and fund it, as far as what I'll talk about in a minute, as far as what we built up in the back end, that whole package was under a million dollars. We got in for, I believe, in his pocket, call exactly, it was probably about a hundred grand in the owner's pocket, and then I had to take care of all the bunch of debts. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I'll let you continue on. Sorry, just those little things I think kind of help people get their arms around it. Oh, absolutely. I, and I apologize for overlooking that. And I think it probably was Legal Aid Document Preparation Service. There was a, an abbreviation, L-A-A-D-P-S. And so individuals that are looking to acquire business can take a real good lesson from this, which is the following. The business was swamped with calls. So when we took over that business and I wanted to get immersed myself, I got involved with a partner who was a friend of mine who was working at the company. And that's how I became aware of this business. So we took over in day one. The problem wasn't generating activity. I mean, it was swamped with phone calls. The bigger problem was, how do you realign the business without jeopardizing that constant influx of inquiries, right? Because we were besieged with incoming calls. You wanted to convert those into revenue. But at the same time, the way the company was doing it was not profitable revenue. And operationally, we needed to take a real step back to organize this company it became abundantly clear that we needed to build a back end that can automate the entire process. Because as it worked, when we took it over, 1,500 calls would come in a day. They would get routed to case managers, which is a fancy word for a salesperson. 
they would help out the individual determine where they were, what type of case it was, whether or not we could do that case, what state they were in, what county they were in, and whether or not that county allowed for individuals to represent themselves in court, because not all counties do, depending on the case type. And they would process the information, manually intake the information related to the case, then try to figure out the documents that they needed for that particular county. To give you an idea, I think it's in the state of Missouri, there's 42 counties. Each one of those 42 counties has a completely different set of documents related to various cases, whether it be uncontested divorce, divorce support, et cetera, that you had to present to the county of the clerk. So you had, in that state alone, you had 42 different sets of documents times the number of different cases. So if we were doing, for example, 20 different types of cases, you had 840 different sets of documents and multiply that pretty much by 50 states. And so taking a step back, so we got to automate this process. So I spent the first 90 days building a backend, not personally, but developing the scope of work for how we were going to automate this business from looking at every single component in the process and automating it. And we built the backend that allowed for the following, and I'll save all the granularity, but what happened from the example that I just told you about, about a call coming in, it would be routed to a case manager. They would get a little bit of detail related to the case, the case type, the state, and the location, and then have to do all this digging related to whether or not the documents were available. Could we get the documents? Can we do the case? And then if we could, then be able to get those documents, fill them out with the individual on the phone, the two, three, five, or 10 pages worth of documents that had to be filled out. And then they would be assigned to a document preparer who was familiar with writing up the appropriate documents because it was at first an intake questionnaire. And so it was a monumental manual exercise. After understanding how it all worked, built a back end that basically automated the process as follows. The calls would still come in. They would still get routed to a case manager, but the case manager would immediately ask name, state, city. Once they entered that information and the case type, it immediately brought up the associated questionnaire that needed to be compiled for that particular state and case type. So by way of background, we spent the first probably 60 days parallel to looking at the scope of work that we were going to build and obtained every single set of documents that had to be prepared for every single case type in every single state except for a couple of states that you couldn't use a document preparer. People couldn't represent themselves pro se. So that was a monumental undertaking, but immediately cut down what would probably have been five to six hours of work into three seconds. The information was sent to the client and they filled out the questionnaire. It was sent to them by email. It was a form that they could populate online. They didn't have to print things out and write them out. They populated it online and it automatically got sent to the proper document preparer to complete that set of documents. We didn't allow document preparers to speak directly with clients. We weren't dispensing legal advice and we never wanted our document preparer to be in a situation where someone was asking them a specific legal question that they were not allowed by law to answer because then it's the unlicensed practice of law. Document preparation is legal. But that process from having 1,500 calls a day to be able to just handle a handful of these documents because what was happening, the prior company was agreeing to do the work and never got the work done. We were able to take situations that I would venture to say in totality probably took 
20 hours of work for a one particular file and reduce it to half an hour. What are we learning from this? I can tell you what I think I'm learning from this. Well, I'd like to hear that. Sure. From this example, I would never purchase a business if you didn't have all these leads coming in. That's the first thing I'm looking at as a buyer. Again, I haven't bought a business before, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, okay, I have all these leads coming in, but it's not fully functional on the back end. I can make that more efficient. But if it was the opposite where there weren't leads coming in and it seemed everything was efficient on the back end, this doesn't seem like a business I would want to buy or an opportunity. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and especially as it relates to me personally, because I don't know if we talked about it, but I have five golden rules for buying a business, and I don't know if we talked about them. No, I don't think we did. Go ahead. So I have five golden rules related to buying a business, and these are my rules, right? So they apply to me, and everybody needs to develop these because it's the ideal criteria to determine quickly whether or not a business makes sense for the individual skill set. But the first, it has to be sales and marketing driven, and why? Because that's what I'm good at. I like a business with high margins. Because as long as it has high margins, I don't care about the revenue because I'm confident in my sales and marketing ability. And so as long as there's high margins, I'm confident I could build the sales. I'm going to skip to number four and five and get back to number three because it ties to your point. Number four is I don't like a business that competes on price because you effectively have to go back into business every day and it's not a sustainable model. And I like a business that has an element of exclusivity, either in a territory or a product. In other words, there's not a whole lot of people doing that type of product or offering that type of service, whether it be geographically or what have you, but it's not an uber competitive market. I'm not stepping on people's toes all the time. And the third golden rule, which I've left for last, is there's got to be demand in place for the product or service. I don't want to have to create demand. It's way too expensive. So as long as demand is in place, all those other four rules dovetail beautifully and they're all symbiotic. They all work with one another, right? And so to your comment related to leads, you are spot on. The thing that I loved about this business is you have 1,500 people effectively lining up at your door every morning to buy a product from you. We just have to figure out how to deliver it in an efficient manner. And the company was completely ineffective in doing so. And my thinking was, hey, the challenge typically in a business is there's no people lining up at the door in the morning. They got all this wonderful stuff, but there's no people lining up at the door. So this was the complete opposite. And it clearly satisfied the demand in place rule, the not competing on price necessarily, even though there was some price sensitivity. There was certainly an element of exclusivity as far as there weren't a whole lot of people doing this, if at all. The margins were nice. The sales and marketing, I didn't have to think about. It was already there. It's 1,500 calls a day. And the demand was there. And now is, okay, how do we satisfy the demand? In other words, we've got this demand, we have the product, we have the people, they may not be the right people, but we know the type of people that need to be involved, which is case manager stroke salesperson, and then document preparer. And how do we merge all of this and put it into a good business, right? And one other thing that I'm thinking is that you have this demand command, but these people are motivated to get it done because they have a timeline of their court date, right? Versus like, if I wanted to get my name changed, right? And I'm not super motivated. Like I, I want to switch my name from Austin Peak to something else. Okay. What motivation do I have? But if I have a court case and I have a timeline of when I need to be in court and have these documents done, then someone has to get them done too. So at least the consumer is motivated to get this done as well. Yes, they are. And so it's a little slightly different the way it operates, which is the clock starts when you submit the documents to the court. However, the time issue is if someone's in a bad relationship and wants to get divorced, uncontested or otherwise, they want to expedite this. Similarly, if you're talking about child support, 
right? Where someone has been granted support by the court, but the other party isn't paying, right? Or on the flip side, if someone is paying support, but wants a modification, those are the type of things they want quickly. The other side of the ledger to all of this is we were dealing with very low income individuals. So first of all, that's why we made this ridiculously affordable because you have to have empathy and you can't take advantage of people when they're in dire financial situation, right? So we made it, and that was just the altruistic side of my partner and I saying, we've got to keep this very affordable for people. And so, yes, there is the time element to it, which in some cases we have to turn around documents very quickly and they wanted to work quickly. So that was all a positive. Generally, it was a positive for the business because people wanted to get to court and get this done quickly. <laughs> and, then, and then the courts, of course, dragged their feet forever. But the clock, at least you could start the clock ticking by getting these documents submitted. And so quickly, like, how did this end up for you? Because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to jump into these other businesses. Yeah, if you can kind of wrap this one up and then we'll go to a new one. About a year or so, a year and a half, I really just, in keeping with my overall philosophy of running business, I want to bring up or potentially sell or bring in a, a more of an operator, found an individual who wanted to acquire part of the business and we worked out a transaction that they would acquire 50% of the business and I, I would train them for a short period of time and we sold it, you know, quite profitable. And then, of course, some other individuals, one of them in the engineering business who purchased our materials. Then I got a call from this guy, Gary Ellswig, who's a phenomenal entrepreneur, and he's also an engineer, civil and geotechnical, I believe, very, very competent, sharp, sharp guy. He was using our materials and decided he needed some additional help. And it was very funny. He got in touch with me. He said, you know, I was thinking about hiring a consultant. I figured I might as well hire the guy who wrote the book. And we started going on the hunt to acquire some businesses. It was very hard to find a couple of engineering companies or engineering companies that he could really put his stamp on. And so if the strategy was he's going to start one and then complete some acquisitions to grow the business. And so he did. He started Capri Engineering. And then we went out and he'd hired me to do consulting with him and went out and purchased a number of engineering firms to bolt on to his main firm. Okay, well, yeah, let me cut in some more here because sure. this, this one sounds actually interesting to me. So this guy started his own engineering firm. How long did he do this for? A few years. Okay, so he started for a couple of years. Was he working for a bigger firm before he even started his own? He was a shareholder at a larger firm and it sold out, did quite well, and then had sort of quasi-retired for a number of years and decided when, you know, when his non-compete was over, he was going to go back into business. Okay, and what was his name? Gary Ellswig. Okay. Was he in Florida as well? At that time he was, yeah. He was in, in the Western United States now. Okay. Well, could you like tell us, because this, this is super interesting. Anyone who might have a business now, whether it's an accounting or something like that, he's an engineer, started his own company, did it for a couple of years. And before that, he told you he wanted to acquire other ones to grow. So when he's acquiring his first one, let's just kind of walk through, if you can remember some of the details of what do you look for? Like we just talked about a business you bought, right? But what are you looking for when you're Look at an engineering firm and trying to acquire that to grow. You ask a great question, but I'm going to twist it a little bit, specifically related to the people who currently own businesses that may be listening. Growing your company through acquisitions is a tremendous way to increase your business, increase the value of your business. And that's what Gary saw. And so in the engineering firm, similarly to people that are listening, and for those that own businesses currently, they should be looking at this in two ways. Number one is potentially acquiring competitors, direct competitors, which is a very specific way of acquiring a business. You just got to go slowly because dissemination of information should be done slowly because it's highly confidential. But that's the first prong. The second prong 
is ancillary businesses that you can add on to your existing businesses that provide more products or services that you can sell to the existing customer base. So for example, someone who's in the engineering business, you would want to either acquire competitors, but if you're acquiring ancillary businesses, it would be businesses like they developed this condo defect mitigation. It was a service and an acquisition where they can go into clients that they currently had and offer a different set of services for them to evaluate the business or be able to provide reporting on the business after a developer handed over to a condo association because there's always lawsuits afterwards. So what this particular business, an offshoot did was it would go in and do a very, very deep study and provide that to the developer so that in the event they were sued for any defects from the condo association that then took over management of the property after the developer was done, they had backup to demonstrate that they were not at fault because this construction audit was done. So there was that. There was other types of engineering firms that were added on. He was doing civil and geotechnical. There were other types of engineering firms that could be added on to sell to the same client base. So for example, if someone is in the, I'll take something very basic, someone who's in lawn maintenance and landscaping, very big down in Florida, commercial especially, there's some pretty significant companies. Well, you have a company that's doing X millions of dollars, it's profitable, but you're doing, by and large, you're going into these commercial locations and you're doing landscaping. Well, you can add on certain products, for example, pressure cleaning. You're already dealing with the client who owns this building, so you could be adding on potentially pressure cleaning or window washing or inside janitorial services or waste the roll-offs for their garbage and waste management. There's a whole series of ancillary businesses that you can add with the underlying theme of the following. I read a book many years ago called Thriving on Chaos by Tom Peters, which was very popular at the time. And one of the things that was mentioned in there, and it's always resonated with me, is that there's a 60% greater chance that an existing customer will buy from you versus going out and getting a new client. And that makes perfect sense, right? You already have a relationship with them. So if you have a business, whatever products or services that you're offering, you already have a relationship with your client base. It makes a whole lot of sense to add on products or services that you can sell to the existing client base. The way I do it in in sort of really base terms is that you have this pipeline of customers. You have to figure out what else you can shove into the pipeline. And so by buying ancillary businesses that you can provide or offer more products or service to the existing client base, it's a brilliant way to increase your business quickly. Because not only you take over the business and you have that business's list of clients, you also have your own list of clients that you can sell these products or services to. So, I mean, I highly encourage business owners. It's the fastest way to grow your business. Yeah, makes sense to me. But how about going back into this engineering example? Because all that makes sense to me. So was this guy getting ancillary engineering firms that they didn't do the exact same thing? Or were they kind of different? Because, you know, engineering is pretty broad, right? Could you give me more details on this specific example, what he was acquiring with the engineering firms? Well, yeah, the two that I mentioned, and maybe I I apologize if I wasn't very clear, but we talked about that condo defect mitigation company. They were doing geotechnical, so you could add civil engineering. You can add, even though they were selling to developers, not in this particular case, but one thing that we looked at was a company that would provide site services, site preparation. So you have this client who's going to be developing this project on a site right? Because they've got the land and ultimately they would need the engineering to come in, but they're also site preparation companies. 
that prepare the land to be built upon. So that was a perfect ancillary businesses. So everything along those particular ones, plus other engineering firms that had a specialty, for example, we purchased a number of them. The services that they offered were perfectly complementary to Capri's services. They were a duplicate, as a matter of fact, the same geotechnical engineering, for an example, but they had one or two clients that were prized clients because that's what happens in engineering. Oftentimes, engineering firms, they have customer concentration where they've established a relationship with a developer or builder over the years, and that builder always uses this company for that component of engineering. So it would be damn near impossible if you're another engineering firm to steal away a client. Your engineering firm A, they've been dealing with engineering firm B for 20 years. They're not going to stop dealing with them, no matter what company A has to offer. So the easiest way to get that client is buy them, buy the company that's got them exclusively, keep the owner on board so that relationship is retained. Then you can continue to just add them into the fold, but there are economies of scale because company B may have 25 employees of which you only need 10 because you have this other big company. Or, or you have the opportunity where company B can also offer some of company A's product or services to their one big client. And so if I'm that engineer and I'm trying to buy my first one, let's just say it's another geotech engineering firm, how much am I putting down? Am I trying to put nothing down? Is that even possible? Like all this makes sense. But then once I start wrapping my head around how much it's going to cost, have I been making enough profit over the last five years to actually do this? I think this is a part where people might be like, this sounds great, makes sense. But once you get to the financials, it seems like it's so much more difficult. It is. And you're completely accurate. And that's why you hear these alleged gurus that are proliferated the internet showing people how to buy businesses for no money down. And it's complete bullshit. Doesn't work. You know, I mean, you probably have to look at 10,000 businesses to find one. I'm doing it for 30 years. So that's the reality news. I don't say bad news. That's the reality news. The good news is there's tremendous opportunities as far as how you finance this. Because if you have a good business that you're already looking to add on to something, if we're talking in that case, well, you know, depending on the scenario, whether or not the ancillary business or the owner wants to stay, you may not be buying 100% of the company, but you have an active business, you work out something with them that you can provide them with a reasonable amount down. It could be 10, 20, 30% down, and the rest could be financed, either financed through the seller or financed through SBA type loans, which are, the interest rates got a little crazy these days, but there's a lot of leverage involved. But the concept is you use the cash flow of the business that you're acquiring to pay off the debt. No, makes sense. So this scenario, like engineering company, like, is it easier to get SBA loan or is it easier to get owner financing? Owner financing and these ancillary type of deals. By the way, 91% of our clients get seller financing. But in these type of situations, referring to the engineering firms, it's even easier for the most part because you're going to bring people over that generally the owner is going to stay and they're going to get a small piece of the larger company. So you may be buying 80% of their business and they're retaining some equity. So now they folded their company into a much larger enterprise that they're going to be able to exit with the idea. Let's say you buy 80% of their company. The idea is if you build it right, that their 20% should be worth more than their 100% by the time the company exits. Yeah. And as a buyer, I'm thinking that I want the seller to carry seller financing. So if there's any messing around with the numbers, I feel more confident if they're giving me seller financing versus if I'm going to go get a loan from a bank or anything like that. 
You want seller finance. You want them to have skin in the game. First of all, you have flexibility related to the terms. If the business runs into any trouble, you can always renegotiate with them. They want to get paid. Good luck trying to do that with a bank. So that's part one. And the second part to your point is you want them to have skin in the game because it's the only way that they absolutely can validate what they've represented if they have risk as well. Yeah. And and thank you for sharing that. It's not going to happen. No money down. You know, like you said, all the fucking fake guru millionaires, everything I see is no money down. You can go get 100% seller financing, whether it's like trying to buy some real estate or something like that. Same thing with business. You're like, I just don't see that like really happening because I try to put myself in the seller's shoes. Like I want something. So basically what I'm kind of getting from this is generally speaking, we're probably going to set a minimum. We're going to be putting down 10%. Again, I'll depend business to business, but don't think you're going to be doing it for free like all the fake gurus are telling you. It's complete bullshit. And I'll tell you, it makes my blood boil because think about this in the most logical. Yeah, you can go buy a shit business for no money down, but that, why do you want that? I just buy a good solid business that you could make great over time. If you own a business, unless you know you're on your deathbed, why would you possibly sell a business to a complete stranger for no money down when you can go to the other plan and sell your business for a good valuation and get cash for that because it's a good business and the market is bubbling with buyers? Logically, it doesn't even make sense. And one of the reasons, Austin, to let you know why I've got back into the promotion or the marketing component of the materials is A, I don't profess to do that type of stuff. Over the last couple of years, the internet is bombarded with these people who, you know, they call themselves gurus. Most of them have never even done what they're selling material about doing. That's number one. What they're good at is they're good at marketing and they're good at taking people's money. It's just a pipe dream. You know, I understand that people would love budding entrepreneurs that have no money and they would love to be able to get into this for no money down. I don't blame them. It would be wonderful. And so you're vulnerable. If someone's pitching that to you, you're vulnerable. Say, hey, I can change my life. There's no money down. Yeah, I'm going to plunk a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand dollars down to, you know, follow this con man's course. And it happens to people all the time. It just makes my blood boil. Like I feel obligated to set the record straight with people because it's just not going to happen. It's complete bullshit. Could it happen once out of a thousand times? Yes, but you'll spend the next five years trying to find that one over a thousand businesses. Now, there are ways for creative financing. There are ways to buy less than 100% of the business. You know, I saw one ad not long ago. They said, buy a business throwing off $250,000 a year of cash flow for no money down and complete the transaction in 30 days. I'll tell you what, I'll eat the building that I'm in right now if that's possible. It's just not possible on an ongoing basis. It's ridiculous. And yeah, you could buy a shit business for no money down, but why the hell do you want to do that? Well, thank you for sharing that part too. That's again, bringing some reality to all the Facebook ads or Instagram ads that some people might be seeing. There was one other point. You gave us a great example of you buying a business, a great example of you helping an engineer grow his business. I think there's one other point. Didn't you say you had helped the Ray Dalio family? Yes. Yeah. Why don't we touch on that before we close up part three here of the interview? I'll bring you through that whole period and I'll try to be quick. But in 2007, I got a call from an individual and he introduced himself, recommended to him as an individual who can help his son who was then living in Florida. He was looking to acquire a small business and he wanted to hire someone specifically to mentor him to help him buy a business. And he gave me his name, said his name is Ray Dalio, which like, okay, whatever. I mean, I didn't pay much attention to that. And it came at a time when my son, who was then five years old, had just been diagnosed with epilepsy. And Ray had called at that time. And I said to him, look, you know, I've decided that I'm taking a few months off to learn about this disease. And he had said to me, he said, look, I, you know, I have some connections with some terrific hospitals and psychologists and neurologists in, in New York. 
if you would like an introduction to anybody, you know, I'm happy to make that. I want to help you regardless. And I thought that gesture was so kind that I said to him, you know, I greatly appreciate it. And then I'll meet with your son, right? Which I did. And I was really, really impressed with him. His name was Devin. And he was really, really impressed with him. He was 29 at the time. Came across as super smart and just a very, very nice kid. And the plan was that I was every week, Devin and I would meet for a couple of hours. And I was teaching him my course, module by module. After each lesson, he got homework. He had to bring it back or send it to me in the interim. And then we'd meet the following week. And we, and we did this for a few months till we went through all of the materials. And I really equipped him with the knowledge using our course. And we worked out a business deal. And the idea is that we were going to go acquire businesses together. Ray would be our sole investor. I was a full partner in the business. And Devin, Ray, and myself were partners in the business. So I was commuting back and forth from Florida to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. We had an office in the city and in Greenwich, and we worked together learning about all different aspects. Ray is all about the learning, so we're learning about all different aspects, because our model was we were going to put together, was going to have a mini PE firm to do what PE firms do, but at the lower end of the spectrum of businesses, typically under probably $10 million. And we made a couple of co-investments with a private equity fund. We made some other investments, and we were growing and learning, and we learned about a lot of different areas. We spent time learning about PE, that model, whether we want to do it and made some investments, whether we wanted to potentially acquire some franchisor businesses. We looked at some healthcare, which was a passion of Devon's. And we ultimately decided that we wanted to channel our investing more towards the life sciences area. And then unfortunately, in, on December 17th, 2020, Devon was killed in a car accident at 42 years old. And you could imagine just you know, the devastation for his family. And it was absolutely horrific. Number of months went by, then we decided to wind down the business because it was stood up for Devin. And from my own personal standpoint, it took me months and months and months to get over his passing. When I say get over it, I mean, I'm, I, I haven't gotten over it just because of how close we were, but to be able to start to function again. And yet my pain and hole in the heart is a fraction of what it is for his parents and, and his siblings. So it was just a horrific, horrific situation, like almost indescribable. Well, thank you for taking the time to dive into more details, especially the last story. I'm sorry for your loss and I appreciate you taking the opportunity to dive in a little bit more detail to hopefully help everybody else who's listening in those details and understand not everything's transactional, even with this podcast or businesses that you're doing and understanding that that's just one part of our lives. It's not the whole thing. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point. I mean, there are transactional pieces to our life and you recognize them as such and that the pieces that aren't transactional, we have to cherish. And when you're involved in business with someone, it's so easy to go off the reservation the other way, right? Because people go into business with friends, family all the time, and then the personal relationship sours as a result of the business. And it's so important no business is worth jeopardizing a good relationship. And that's why, you know, always advise people, if you're going to go into business with a friend, a family member, a spouse, whatever the case may be, you have to understand what's at stake. Not only is there money, but there's a relationship. And that's so much more important. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on for a part three here, Richard. If anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Well, I appreciate that. And I must tell you, I've enjoyed our time together immensely. The easiest way is my website, richardparker.com. There's a contact page on there that can get routed to me. Just mark in there. Please send this to Richard. 
If anybody wants to have a call together, wants to jump onto a, a call, may have any questions or just wants to chat a little bit, I love these, these conversations and I'm happy to do so. So I would say the best way is just go to richardparker.com, use the contact page. Similarly, my email is rp, as in Richard Parker, rp at richardparker.com. And I welcome anybody to get in touch with me. I, I love having these conversations around business or life or whatever the case may be. And, and of course, if there's individuals that are thinking about acquiring a business, on that same website, there's hundreds of free articles. Our, our courses are available there, but there's hundreds of free articles that people can do some deep dive and learning and see if this may be for them. And, and again, I, I thank you for your time. It's been terrific. Yeah. And thank you for being so open about the personal side as well as the business side, because I think just as important for everyone to understand, you know, that it, again, it's just one part of our life. That personal part is obviously even more important. So thank you again for coming on, Richard. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now.